This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Monday to you folks. It is the day of the eclipse. Oh, oh, oh. You know what? It also might be the end of the world. You never know. I have a feeling it's, I have a feeling the world's going to continue. I don't know. Do I need, I have a a meeting, a speech I'm giving this afternoon. Do I need to worry about the speech? No, just blow it off. Because it could all be over. What time's it at? Two. Oh, you're clear. No, but maybe the world will end. No, no, you're fine. Start making things right with all those you've ever wronged, Matt. This is the time. You need to apologize for the things you've done, the things you haven't done. Jeff, I wanted to start with you. I'm sorry that I made fun of that oozing, gaping hole on your leg. Thank you. (laughs) Terry, I'm sorry that I didn't take you seriously. All right. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) When you were... uh, when you were talking about the eclipse six months ago. Mm. It's a big moment. It's a big moment. Lots of people traveling, lots of cars heading uh, fact, Bonnie north. Tyler, she's on a Royal Caribbean cruise and will be playing this song at the optimal moment of the eclipse wherever she is on of that cruise ship. Of course she will. I think this yeah. is a different eclipse than the eclipse. No, no, no. She's performing this song today on a cruise ship. But don't, but don't turn a, around. It's telling well, you to turn around. I know. Don't turn around. They might. I mean, the boats, they can. I would have thought the Today Show would have booked her today. She's actually, one of those shows has her on live. Okay. From the cruise ship. Okay. Because, of course, we have to turn this into a spectacle. So, Matt, it sounds like you're kind of just giving up. Are you going to, like, walk out into the sunset and just look up and just end it all or something? Uh, No. Okay. But I'm worried that, you know. The animals are going to go crazy. Just let me go to this sleep. This could impact the tides. Not really. You never you know. know. The moon's not moving. You never know. Right. This could get ugly. You're right. We never know. That's it. And what's weird is everyone's going to Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, all these states. Oregon. I Oregon. showed you the camps in yeah. Oregon. They're huge. These are states that people aren't used to You know, having all of yeah. these cars. They don't even have milk. The biggest city it crosses through is Nashville. Really, and they're gonna have boy Nashville. That's a big. I mean, I mean, a big right. city for a little eclipse, and uh, or a little city for a big. I watched. Was it CBS yesterday? CBS News had a graphic, and they showed a the a, within a day's drive. There's like 57 million people. Wow! Not that everyone's gonna drive there, but they have no idea how many people are gonna show up in a major town like Nashville. But the inter- but you know, Nashville is going to do better than these small towns. They have yeah more infrastructure to handle that many yeah, people. But. They actually have a store. By or, the way. Here's something else you shouldn't stare directly at. What? The music video to Total Eclipse oh, of the Heart by Bonnie it? Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's, we got to put those glasses uh, on. It's pretty bizarre. Let's just say. Let me, let me try on. it on. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's much better. Much better. <laughs> you can't <laughs> see. It's great. Well, we wish everybody the best today. Um, countdown to the eclipse. We are about two hours out. That is true. From where we are located here in the... At the hills of the everlasting what? hills of the great. From beneath, from behind the shadows of the everlasting mountains. Yeah. Yeah. So 
The rest of you be paying attention. I don't know if that's right. Uh, there are websites you can go to to check out. On our Twitter feed, I put out a USA Today has a interactive map. Which you, you need. You right. put in your zip code. Yeah. And it will tell you how much of the eclipse you'll see. Like, for instance, us. Yeah. When we, you know, stop working. When we well, start. When we stop not working, because it's mostly YouTube and Facebook around here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see about 90% coverage. Yeah. 90%. That's pretty good. Uh, it'll start at 10.13 mm. in the morning, go for two hours and 45 minutes. The best time to see the peak of the eclipse will be 11.33 here. Here in Nervous City. If you're in Oregon, it'll be at 10.21. Okay. Right? If you're in St. Louis, it's at 1.18. Oh, see, they've got to wait all day. And hmm. if you're in Atlanta, it's at 2.36. Those are the optimal times to see the most of the eclipse in that, those specific areas. So it's kind of across the country. So 90% coverage... Mm-hmm. With a twenty percent chance of rain. No, yeah. no rain. Oh, okay. Nice and clear. There's some places that are cloudy. That with a chance of you tell me that wouldn't be the really worst. big parties. People are all anticipating and lots of cloud coverage. <laughs> Good luck with that. What does it mean when you're missing a once in a lifetime event? Once in twice in a lifetime. It'll happen event. in 2024. It won't be as. But yeah, you'll have to travel to the location, right? I mean, right. a lot of these, this is just shooting right through the country. It's kind of nice. It's like God brought it right to us. Mm-hmm. Well, for us, we'd have to go to Idaho. And then cloud cover. Little... I know, but we get 90% occlusion. That's Yeah, but as we heard from our guest a couple of weeks ago, there's a big difference between 90% and 100%. Yeah, no, it's 10, 10% is yeah, the it, difference. It would be 10%. If you do the math, I mean, if you're it's doing, 10%. If you're into math, deal. I think that, yeah, it's about 10%. As he said, there's no time during the 90% where you can look at the actual event oh, with the yeah. naked eye. But with 100%, there's a two-minute window where you can stand and stare at it. That would wow. be so cool. And then, yeah, and then catch the cow that's running through your neighborhood. Right. Thanks for tuning in to a 97 for There the, we go. Except for the hippies. Because <laughs> I'm going to guess there are a lot of hippies in these camps in Oregon and yeah. Idaho hippies well maybe the hippies will be running from the cows well, probably you never know hey also today we're going to talk about how hippies. your job acquires a gender mm. so when you think of when i say nurse do you think of male or female a well, nurse female you think female a man would be an orderly but that's a whole different job yeah or but, it'd be yeah. ben stiller and meet the parents he was yeah, a male nurse that's right and that and that that shocked the dad a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Made fun of him. How about show. firefighter, male or female? Male, male. Cop, male. Interesting. There's female cops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how about? <laughs> Never mind. Won't say that one. How about? Um... Wow. I've got a good one. What psychiatrist? What about him? Do you male think or male or female? Male. Really. How about doctor? Hmm. Hmm. Teacher. Female. See, isn't it interesting? Your Elementary mind... school teacher. I would probably say female. Female. Principal. Male. When my wife delivered our last child, the entire team, there was like 12 people and everyone was female. Doula. It kind of stunned me. <laughs> when you think like, of a seriously. doula... Yeah. You now, think of a female. Dula oblongata or just doula? Yeah. Well, I don't know what the doula is. There's the got. medulla oblongata. Yeah, that's different. Okay. That's a body part, right? It's part of the brain, isn't it? Yeah, there's just some jobs 
are labeled specifically one so way or the other. So we'll be today we'll be speaking with a researcher that talks about how this happens. How does a job get a gender and 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 does it impact how you view the authority of the person that has it? Apparently it does, especially if the if the authority – if it's a female kind of profession, then all of a sudden you tend to have less authority. But this is this actually impacts men and women, right? So there are men that that don't want to go get nursing jobs, even though they're available, because nurses are that's a female role. And we'll talk about all of that and the impact that has. That's coming up in a they, few minutes. They could change the name, like it used to be stewardess. Now yeah. it's flight attendant, yeah. medical fixer. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. We will also get into some empty news today. Um, crazy stuff. Uh, a, a live World War II mortar was found in a Utah home and uh, other headlines that you're not going to want to miss. Maybe somebody saw Bigfoot. Really? Yeah. Maybe. Do you know why? The eclipse. The eclipse brings all of the animals out. Brings all the weirdos out. Mm-hmm. I, if a Loch Ness Monster is going to be surfacing today. You know it. Nessie. Nessie. Yeah. Pete's dragon is going to show up. Yeah. Pete's Pete, dragon. Pete's not going to be there, though. This is a solo appearance. Really? Just, yeah. just, just a dragon. Just a dragon. They can't, Elliot. Af- they can't afford both of them. Elliot is his name, by the way. Elliot is the name of Pete's dragon. Mm-hmm. It's a silly name for a dragon. I and mean, wouldn't you want your dragon to be named something more ferocious than Elliot? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get to all of that fun. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should pay attention to? Today's solar eclipse will be streamed live online for the first time from a vantage point of helium-filled balloons across the United States, providing the public with sky-high views as the moon blocks the sun. A team of researchers from Montana State University has partnered with NASA to participate in the Space Grant Ballooning Project. Sounds like a mistake. Yeah. To send more than 50 high-altitude balloons 80,000 feet into the air to capture the solar eclipses across the country. The eclipse shadow is expected to move at 2,000 miles per hour in Oregon and then slow down to 1,500 miles per hour in South Carolina. Not sure why the slowdown, but uh, it probably has to do with math. Well, and traffic. Oh, you know, traffic gets congested towards South Carolina. The East Coast has got a lot of people. The latex balloons are roughly nine feet tall when filled with helium. They'll be equipped with high-definition video cameras, still cameras, and computers. They will be launched from roughly 50 U.S. locations and transmit the images back to Earth. You can watch this all at NASA.com. amazing. Okay, I'm going there right now. Now, granted, every other TV network is going to go wall-to-wall with their correspondents in these camps talking to, I'm guessing, hippies. But don't you think it's more fun to watch NASA.com? I don't oh, know. it's not I w- NASA, NASA.org. There probably. you go. I was watching their Dot Instagram gov. feed yesterday. Yeah. And they had all these, all these scientists describing their um, experiments they're going to be doing today. And it would be great if someone could actually present something that yeah. didn't sound... I'm going to be looking at the sun, and it's all monotone. Like, oh my gosh! Come on, people! Come on, man! Some of this could be very interesting, but this you could just, be the end of the world. You just lost me. So, whatever. Very interesting yeah, to see this how this is. is being covered. Everyone's going wall to wall because totally I mean, clips. And then my question is: Will President Trump feel as if someone, the moon and the sun, are upstaging him as he has a press conference later tonight? Yeah. And he needs to find a way to move the media message this afternoon. <laughs> right in the middle of it. By the way, turn your phones off. That's one of the rules. Turn your phones off so you don't get a text right. in the middle of this thing. This is true. 
Uh, and some sad news. A second police officer has died from his wounds after a shooting in Kissimmee, Florida over the weekend. Officials believe the officer, Matthew Baxter and Sam Howard, might have been ambushed while they were responding to a routine call. A suspect, Everett Glenn Miller, is in police custody. He was in charge of first-degree murder. President Trump tweeted his condolences to the officers mm. and their families. We talked about this, how there's yeah. this uptick in ambushes on police officers just sitting in their cars. In other news, one week after the violent protests rattled Charlottesville, Virginia, a scheduled free speech rally in Boston Saturday was met with thousands of counter-protesters, but the day went off smoothly. Police said there were 33 arrests but few injuries. The free speech rally was deemed officially over by police ahead of its official end time, but thousands of counter-protesters continued to spread out in the city throughout the afternoon, with some protesting peacefully but others confronting officers and people. Police did stop three people with ballistic vests and a gun. But they said we were lucky to get those three out of here and confiscate the vests. So they were troublemakers, and they got rid of them. <sighs> there were there is usually always some you know a few people that yeah, want to make, make always trouble, but uh, nothing nothing uh, as bad as what happened the week before. Yeah. So. And finally, Paul Allen, Microsoft co-founder, billionaire philanthropist, mm-hmm. he owns the Seattle Seahawks. He led a search team that has found the wreckage of the USS warship Indianapolis, which was sunk by a Japanese torpedo in the final days of World War II. More than 18,000 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Wow. The, this is from the Navy. The uh, cruiser was returning from its mission to deliver components for the atomic bomb that was soon to be dropped by the, on the Japanese city of uh, Hiroshima when it was fired upon in the North Pacific by a Japanese submarine on July 30th, 1945. It sunk wow. in 12 minutes. According to the Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, no distress signal was sent. About 800 of the 1,196 crew members aboard survived the sinking, but only 316 were rescued alive five days later. So about 800 survived the, the torpedoing of the ship, but 300 actually survived five days later. The rest lost to exposure, dehydration, drowning, and sharks. See, that was the story. So the guy that was in Jaws, mm-hmm. the captain had that... Horrifying story. That's right. Of Quint. Yeah, I think Quint. that's the scariest part of the movie. So he had the, telling that he had story. The, the chilling monologue yes. about surviving that. I watched a Shark Week, and they had a movie kind of documentary. They reenacted this thing, Ugh. and I, I had no idea about this story. And they're just up there floating around, and they show the, like what the view would have been for the sharks below. And man, you're just out there in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows you're there. That is terrifying. They were supposed to make a movie of that. Supposed to be kind of like a <clears throat> prequel to Jaws. Really? They never did. Thank heavens. That's a Scary. that's a horrible story. So they found the ship. I don't know what they're going to do about it. It's down quite a ways. Well, you just send some drone ship, robot ship down there. But you get, or James Cameron. You get he this sort of ethics thing. Do you just leave it because it's a, it's a hallowed tomb, right? site, right? Yeah. No, so, well, I'm sure we'll go knock around a bit. See what's down <laughs> That's there. That's just how we work. And we'll knock it down another mile. Yeah. Good job, guys. Wow. I'm, I'm watching the clock ticking for the NASA clock an hour, one hour and about 38 minutes mm. until I, I guess this is for us it's here the Na- in NASA, Utah. NASA TV preview show. Is that lady scalping the goggles? Yeah. I think she's scalping them. Oh, yeah. Lots of people are scalping goggles now. Airbnb uh-huh. in locations where the uh, uh, where it's prominent, right? Where this uh, close to these areas of total, what are they calling it? The total total uh, eclipse of the heart. There you go. Um, they're up like ten times the rate 
The Airbnb I think really. prices for the, the $10 million. Are, yeah, and you're like a one, one bedroom apartment. In your trailer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. I'll just sleep in a tent. Yeah, I'm, I, NASA's really got it covered. If you go there, you can go to Eclipse 101 mm. and learn everything you need to learn. And even learn how to use the word umbra and penumbra. Like moon in front of sun. Mm-hmm. Got it. No, it's more complicated. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. It's not to us because we have very simplistic is it more? Is it more complicated if you need it to be? Yes. Like if you start if you, trying to do the math? If you need funding. Okay. Like if you're, if you're looking for funding, then uh-huh. yeah, you gotta, you'll complicate it just a bit. Understood. Interesting, interesting stuff. And, you'll, and remember, there's those moments where you'll see a diamond ring. If you're, if you're at the total eclipse, there will be a moment where you'll see the diamond ring. And like the pearls. Oh, look for the pearls. Hmm. There's all of these extra things that are part of the eclipse. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you. And a reminder, if you traveled out of state to see the eclipse, don't fall asleep. Don't sleep in yeah. on today of all days. Yeah, but you'd have to sleep pretty late in some I places. I guess that's true. Apparently 2 o'clock in the East Coast. You know something else that people are spotting? What? Maybe Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. You want to hear about that yeah, before we go to break? It. little empty news. Members of a group calling themselves Bigfoot 911, they claim they spotted the giant walking bear-like legendary creature in the woods of western North Carolina Friday night. Hmm. Johnny Bruner posted on the Marion Group's Facebook page. It's a closed group page, so you probably can't just go join it to see the footage. Nice try. That the expedition in McDowell County hit pay dirt just before 11 p.m., the sighting came after three teams set up glow sticks at various locations, Bruner said. Oh, because glow sticks attract. Yeah. Yeah. Big glow foot. sticks so, uh, totally eclipses. They bring so out beef Bigfoot. jerky, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, he describes how they heard movement in the woods three steps at a time. And the creature came into view near a glow stick about 30 yards away. Hmm. The angle of the moon was shining straight down on the road, and mm. something big stepped into view. What? <laughs> I t- <laughs> what was it? <laughs> I turned my headlamp on, and I saw a large bipedal animal covered in hair. It Dad? Took- <laughs> Dad? It took one step into the woods. Then I took off running toward where it went into the woods. If, if there was this giant... Yeah. Creature. Chase it. Why would you run after it? <laughs> Did you have a torch? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bruner said the man animal. Manimal. He had uh, he had man animal hands, by the way, yeah. was standing 30 yards to his right with its right hand on a tree that had been broken off nine feet above the ground. What? So this thing is huge. Huge. Its face was solid black yeah. with no hair on it. The hair looked shaggy all over its body. Okay, and here's the crazy part. Uh-huh. It turned and took five steps and was at the bottom of the hill, probably 30 yards. So it has So a in five huge... steps, he went 30 yards. Wow. And then this is the best part. I could see the gluteus maximus flexing with each step. Wow. He must work out. That thing is ripped. <laughs> <laughs> Sasquatch is ripped. Wow. That's – do you believe it? It – he's has he's got proof. We just can't see it. Well, yeah, no. It sounds like he wants you to go sign up for his Facebook page. Hmm. I think you have to join his team 
and go out on an expedition before they'll allow that. Before they'll allow the glute shot? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's crazy. We'll give you every day, we'll just we'll release one small portion of the gluteus maximus <laughs> photo. Here is here here's the Sasquatch leaning against a tree and one of his 6-meter strides. Mm. Well, well, you know, the eclipse is bringing out everything, folks. If it's not Sasquatch, it's going to be Aunt Myrtle who makes it up to your Idaho home. Anyway, crazy town, crazy time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we're talking about how a job acquires a gender. Crazy stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Why is it that some jobs are seen as best suited for women and other jobs are best for men? Women are assigned receptionist, nursing, child care, while men get construction, mechanic, and firefighting. Gender bias in the workplace can disadvantage women and men, according to a study from uh, Dr. Laura Doring. She's an assistant professor of strategy and organization from McGill University, and she's with us today to talk about her research and her findings. Laura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Is um, it's interesting because I, I, I'm dying to figure out how it happens that we've kind of that a job has created a gender because we were just doing a little study earlier of our own or a test of our own where when you think of a nurse, your mind kind of automatically t- tends to think of a female. Um, is this is this socialization? How is it that we've um, gendered or created a gender for a job? Well, this is exactly the question that my co-author and I wanted to find out because we had, you know, similar observations to what you were talking about earlier, that we think of firefighters as men and preschool teachers as women. But, you know, how does it how does it come to be that way? Why do we think of certain jobs as having masculine or feminine stereotypes? Um, And what we found was that these masculine and feminine stereotypes that we associate with certain jobs essentially come from the initial interactions that we have with people who are filling jobs that are otherwise gender ambiguous. Um, So what we found in our study was that people quickly came to treat a gender ambiguous job as, quote, a man's job or a woman's job. And really all it took was interacting with one person for people to start treating these roles as mm. if they were better suited for men or women. Interesting. So it really only it's it's about our interaction on the kind of the gender ambiguous job. Because um, if I if I had a fire truck full of females show up and that was my fire department and I got to know them, then I would naturally just think of firefighters as neutral. Well. What we looked at, and so the reason why I think, you know, our study is, is just a little bit different is that we started with a job that didn't have a strong gender stereotype attached to it. So we already, you know, think of firefighters as being a, a sort of a more masculine job. And so what we did was we started with a job that really didn't have a strong gender association one way or another. And yeah. this really allowed us to look at what happened basically when you when you start from zero. And that's where we saw that it was really through these interpersonal interactions that people very, very quickly um, started to treat to treat jobs 
that don't have any, you know, natural masculine or feminine characteristics as if they were uh, better suited to men or women. And that neutral job that you that you used was a microfinancier, right? So somebody uh, offering loans, uh, small loans to people in in other countries. That's exactly right. So we were looking at the the job of a commercial microfinance loan manager in Central America, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what made it uh, a great job to look at was that people didn't really associate this job with one gender or another. Um, It's also a job that was relatively new in that context. And, you know, microfinance is part of the financial sector, which is traditionally masculine. But microfinance also has a legacy of social service and poverty alleviation, which are activities that we traditionally associate with women. Hmm. So it was a great job because it wasn't really clear if it was a quote unquote a man's job or a woman's job. And then um, you, some of the things you noticed were interesting. I guess it would depend on was it did it depend on the first relationship that we had? So if my first relationship was with a female in that field, did I then start to interpret that job as being more of a female gender job? Um, and does it matter if then the role switched? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we found that once people, if people were first, uh, essentially these are microfinance clients, if they were first paired with female managers, then they came to treat the job itself as a fee, what we call in the literature a female type job, just a job that people you know associate with women. And what we found was that when they were switched to other managers, so folks who had originally worked with a woman and thought about that job as a feminine job, they treated the next person who came in to to fill that role with less authority. Um, And what was interesting was that they treated them with less authority, regardless of whether the new person stepping in was a man or a woman. So it wasn't so much about the individual as the gender that people associated with the job itself. Interesting. So um, th- this is this is an interesting study, I think, because a lot of people might might not see the you know the damage that this could do. Help us understand the downside to creating this uh, and identifying a gender to a profession. Sure. So we often think about gender stereotypes as negatively affecting women. So that that's an idea that we're we're pretty familiar with. And one of the things that was interesting in our study was that we found that these sorts of gender biases that we attach to jobs can also negatively affect men. So when men worked in positions that others associated with men and masculine stereotypes, they enjoyed very high levels of authority. But when they worked in the same job, but it was a job that others happened to associate with women, men experienced much less authority. Um, So what we're trying to argue in this paper is that associating genders with jobs um, can have negative downstream effects for both men and women. And um, that's interesting because you'd think if it were just – if it were – if a man was in a nursing job, you would think that the man would have would just take his male dominant, you know, male advance or advantages and more dominate the nursing world. But what you're saying is they're perceived as having less authority in that role than a female would. That's right. That's right. Um, so in our study, 
you know, we were looking at these commercial microfinance loan managers. But I think if we were to to extrapolate to another setting, um, like you're saying, with the nursing profession, which is very female dominated, what we might expect is that men in those positions, even though they're men and they enjoy lots of uh, gender benefits in other contexts, if they're working in a role that people associate with women, they might experience less authority than women who are filling that same role. Hmm. And it's interesting, though, because this isn't being done consciously, is it? I mean, this is like a subconscious thing that we're doing. I think that's absolutely right. I don't think, you know, many people are waking up in the morning and, you know, striving to behave in gender biased ways. I think it's very unconscious. I think it's something that really we're we're all guilty of. Um, One thing that was interesting in the study was that we found that both men and women responded in these biased ways. So it wasn't, you know, for instance, just that men were behaving in biased ways towards women or vice versa, but that really everybody was behaving in these biased ways. Hmm. Um, and so, which I think, you know, makes it, makes it all the more important and even a greater call to action really for all of us. Is, um, does it matter by like your societal norms, your culture? If you, you were, you were evaluating, um, as part of your study, uh, Central America uh, microfinance loan managers, is, is that if, if certain cultures are more kind of stereotypical or, or more biased or um, do certain cultures pick up more gender bias with jobs than other cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that we get a lot because we've done this research in in Central America, which is certainly a very different cultural context, say, you know, to the United States or or Canada. Um, I think that there is the possibility. And because we didn't look at other countries, I I can't say with any certainty, for instance, how, how this would play out in a different cultural context. But what other scholars have shown is that gendered attitudes are pretty consistent across cultures. There there are some cultures that have more traditional gender stereotypes than others where people are um, more more gender progressive, more some some cultures that are more gender progressive than others, but the tendency to view men as more more agentic and more competent, that's pretty consistent hmm. across cultures. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's one of the few things in in social science where we we see this um, very uh, very constant uh, set of behaviors across cultures. How do you change this? Something that's so kind of seemingly universal cross culture, but also I guess something that's so subtle uh, and subconscious. Yeah, that's absolutely the most important question. I think. Um, You know, where we can start, I believe, is with employers. So employers have enjoyed numerous returns when they have diverse workplaces. So employers really want to make sure that their employees are treated equitably and fairly. And one way that we can try to minimize bias in the workplace is through endorsements. And basically, this just means a very high-status person in an organization, like the boss, um, speaking very favorably in front of other people about someone who is at risk of experiencing this kind of bias. So just to give you an example, if you imagine 
a staff meeting at a hospital. You can think of a hospital administrator who gets up in front of everyone else and starts touting the importance of nurses, uh, you know, encouraging physicians and other staff members to respect their professional abilities and their suggestions. And these endorsements from high-status individuals can nudge other employees towards more equitable treatment of people who are filling these female-typed roles. So I think there's there's some structural changes that, that um, employers can take. Uh, for example, using standardized evaluation tools. So bias is a lot more likely to creep in when evaluations are subjective and when our expectations aren't clearly defined. So instead of evaluating performance based on general impressions, um, employers can use really clear agreed upon metrics for what constitutes good performance. And using these really standardized metrics can help to minimize bias as well. Yeah. And it, uh, did you see by chance the picture of President Trump's – I guess he went to Camp David to meet to talk about the Afghanistan um, policy and, and what, their, what their approach is going to be. Then they took a picture after with all of the – with generals, with NSA leaders, with Homeland Security leaders. And I, I think there's about f- maybe 12 people in the picture, 14 people in the picture, all men but one female. And because, again, um, and she's she's kind of a temporary uh, Homeland Security uh, head. Um, but the, the it was General Kelly who who gave his position to her when he went to work as chief of staff for, for um, President Trump. But it's it's interesting that and she I mean, one of the one of the issues is, do we even see uh, females as generals? Do we see them as Homeland Security? Do we see them as national security advisors? And it's it's hard because there's so many numbers, right? But like you're saying, if we could start getting the metrics right, the measurements right, and then have some sponsors that are in key positions, I guess that's the beginning. You've got to begin to to let more in. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's absolutely right, and I think the more that we see men and women in gender atypical roles, for instance, like a female general, the less we think about those roles as being stereotypically male or female. And, you know, the fact is that as our economy shifts, workers are going to need to cross gender lines more often. Already we see women entering science and technology fields and more men are entering caregiving professions like nursing um, because these are fields that are really in in high demand. Um, and so I think that by working to eliminate some of these authority penalties based on gender, you know, we create not only happier individuals who are working, but also, you know, support a more a, a very robust and, and changing economy as well. Yeah. Good stuff. Laura, let's take a break, come back and continue learning what we can do about uh, uh, gender identifying jobs. I mean, it's it's such a subtle thing that's going on, and but they're everywhere. We all and we, we all have this uh, kind of inherent bias, which you know it's scary at times to think that you could already just have this identification with a gender for one job. Interesting stuff. More with Lock, uh, Dr. Laura Doring, an assistant professor of strategy and organization at McGill University. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
We are talking about how a job acquires a gender. For example, nurses you might perceive as a female job, firefighters more as a male job. And uh, we're talking with an expert on how this comes to be. It's a very subtle uh kind of transition. Joining us is Dr. Lara Doring. She is a, an assistant professor of strategy and organization at McGill University and studied um, in Central America, studied microfinance loan managers, which is which would kind of be seen as a gender neutral profession. Um, and then in their study, they found uh, that if, if, uh, if your microfinance loan manager was a female, and that was your first interaction, you would start to see that that profession is it tends to be more of a female gendered profession. Have I got that right so far, Laura? You've got it right, yep. And then one of the things that was really interesting in your study is the idea that if if you if people perceived the job as a female gendered profession, then they were actually more likely to miss payments. And to actually make uh, like not pay back their loans as as well as they would if they perceived it as a male uh, gender job, is that right? That's correct. Yep. Which so talk to us about like so the downside to this is I guess you're seen as having less authority um, than that. I guess female loan managers were seen as having less authority, so less of a need to pay back the loan as opposed to male male uh, microfinance managers? That's right. So we looked at mispayments rate as a measure of authority that the microfinance clients would afford to their manager. And and the reason why we looked at mispayments is that making a payment on time essentially signals that the borrower views the manager as someone whose authority is legitimate and as someone whose instructions need to be followed. Microfinance is much more relational than we might think of our relationship, say, to you know our mortgage lender or something mm. like that. Um, so if you miss a payment, basically that signals that the borrower feels like he or she can approach uh, repayment responsibilities more laxly. So when a borrower misses payments, it suggests basically that the manager lacks the ability to secure compliance and in the eyes of the borrower lacks authority. Hmm. Is that true if it was a female borrower with a female loan manager? That's true as well. That's right. Yeah, we didn't we didn't find any major differences between male and female borrowers. Both uh, both men and women responded in the same way. Yeah. So um Boy, I mean, that all of a sudden, then you start thinking, which was maybe why you would see that there is a bias in a company. If all this, if if a job is seen as a male job, for example, or I guess it doesn't matter, but if men are able to get more loans repaid than women just by this bias, then mm-hmm. it seems like you'd hire more men. It's right, you know. Um, so I've gone back to the the bank where I presented, uh, where I gathered this data and presented this to them, and they they sort of jokingly said, "So should we fire all our female loan managers?" And of course, you know, the answer the answer to that is no, because they they derive a great deal of benefit, you know, beyond repayment from having a diverse staff, just as any any company or organization would. So I think you know the the solution is not to, you know, get rid of, of uh, women and female-type positions, but to learn how to, to manage these biases so that 
we can most effectively take advantage of, um, you know, all of the the, the benefits and um, sort of the, the wonderful work that that's done in female typed roles. It's it really and it's very interesting, too, to think that I would subconsciously take a take different advantage of uh, these roles based on the gender, too. I mean, to think that I would re- be less likely to less uh, uh, active to pay my debts back to a female manager versus a male manager it, it, I guess it just shows the subtlety. I, I just assume women will be nicer to me, I guess, more lenient. I, you know, I think I think that that might be part of it. I, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting follow up research to be done to figure out what exactly are these borrowers thinking when, you know, they sort of believe that they might be able to, to get away with making fewer loan payments uh, with someone who's filling a female type's role. But I think what's really interesting about this is that, you know, missing a loan payment is detrimental for the borrower as well because it affects right. their credit score. So it's it's not necessarily uh, a win-win for the borrower if, if they feel like they can get away with missing more payments. Interesting. So one of the key learnings is that, A, this is happening, um, that B, another with point is just simply that it harms all of us. Mm-hmm. And maybe make mm-hmm. it clear for us how it harms us. Yeah. So when either men or women are working in a female typed role, both men and women seem to be experiencing less authority in that role. And, you know, ideally, we all want to live in a world where we perform the work that's best suited to our abilities, regardless of gender. And so what this means is that everyone needs to be treated with the same levels of authority, whether that role is a male or female typed role. Um, So I think it, you know, what this, what this does is really prompt us to think carefully about the organizations that we work within and as well as to think about our own behaviors and thinking about ways that, you know, we can mitigate this sort of gender bias in our, our own behavior. Yeah. Wow, interesting research. Where do you go from here? What's your next what's your next test? What's your next uh study? Oh, that's that's a great question. So I I'm working on a new study now that looks at how um the strength of relationships between microfinance loan managers and their clients uh affects loan managers uh essentially leniency towards towards mm. their clients um as well as clients' compliance, um, again, in their, in their repayments towards their loan officers. So continuing to look at how these relationships uh, affect outcomes in, in the financial sector. Interesting. And I, I guess your assumption, the better the relationship, the more likely to be taken advantage of? Well, it's actually uh, a little bit, uh, there, there's a bit of a twist to it. So what I find is that when loan managers and clients have relationships that start out very strong, that the loan managers are fairly lenient with them. So mm. if clients get into trouble, um, they're, they're much more lenient because of that strong relationship. But over time, as the relationship decays, that leniency among loan managers remains, although clients then start to miss payments over time. So loan officers remain very committed to their to their clients, but the clients over time uh, start to miss more and more payments. Oh, see, relationships. <laughs> Maybe they're not as good as we thought. 
Awesome. Awesome stuff. Well, I appreciate you, Laura. Thank you for your great work. Laura Doring's her name. And again, uh, she's a professor, assistant professor of strategy and organization at McGill University um, and does what she can to understand the impact of our sociological forces on economic development. And uh, so much to learn, isn't it? Crazy. We all have it. Just a very simple bias uh, that does impact what we think we can get away with, what we what we think we should be able to get away with, and maybe just being a little more informed about it can help all of us. That's why we bring you such interviews. We'll continue the journey in just a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We're about an hour away or so, at least where we live, from the eclipse, and uh, hopefully you're tracking it as well. Lots of great sites to, to help you with that. NASA.org would be one. No, actually, NASA.gov would be a great one as well. Um, but uh, before we get into our last hour, our last hour of the show, where we're going to be talking nothing but eclipse, let's get to some of our empty news with Jeff Simpson. Jeff, what uh, what else should we be paying attention to? I'm hoping – I know you're very big on this on the show, helping out the crook. Yeah. Right? I mean if, if somebody's going to be a crook, you, sure. you may as well be good at it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I was hoping that you could maybe give an assessment okay. of this crook and maybe talk about what's really going on. All right. So an, Ill- an Illinois man was arrested Friday after attempting to report a robbery. Okay. Oh, okay. Weird. Seems strange, right? Yeah, just reporting. While also being the suspect of an armed robbery earlier that evening. Oh, oh yeah. Changes things. <laughs> Joshua L.T. Franklin, he's 19, was charged Monday with armed robbery and booked into jail. Okay, on Friday at approximately 7.45 p.m., the police department received a 911 call from a local market reporting an armed robbery. Hmm. Okay, nothing yeah. strange yeah, so far. Sure. A suspect description was obtained and a perimeter was established by the police. The suspect was seen near the East Alton Wood River High School shortly after the robbery, according to a police report. Yeah. Within an hour of the reported armed robbery, police reported a subject that matched the suspect's description was inside the lobby of their police department wanting to report a robbery in Wood River. Weird. Yes. (laughs) Officers arrived and quickly determined the person wanting to report a robbery was the suspect in the Wood River Market armed robbery. Hmm. Franklin was taken into custody without incident. Okay. See, now, I mean— Was he other, just a good Samaritan? I, I'm getting—you know, other crooks would would say that that is not a smart move. No. Right? Like, yeah, you, you don't walk in to the police department. You basically turned yourself in. But maybe what he was – was he trying to create his own alibi? Was he trying to create his own – was he – or was is he like a pyromaniac that lights a fire and then watches it while the fire department comes? I don't know. I mean do you think this was kind of a cry for help? What can you tell us about this individual? Well, it was a definitely a cry for something. I guess in the end, are you a good – just a good Samaritan or are you really just – a criminal trying again to manipulate the system. Does it really matter, honestly, when you still have a five to ten sentence? 
Either way. But by the way, is this his is this him reaching out saying, "Hey, I'm lost and I need help." I don't know what to call it except not a very smart criminal. <sighs> Maybe it had something to do with the eclipse. You don't ever want to... Oh, Jeff. Jeff. You've got such a big heart, man. Jeff. Seriously. Jeff, pick yourself up, man. That's an embarrassing cry. Whatever happened to Mr. Joshua L.T. Franklin, 19? It's sad, but it represents all of us. It doesn't mean you're good. It doesn't mean you're bad. What it means is you got to think before you walk into the police department. It's kind of a sad Maybe story. that little cricket on his shoulder was yeah. telling him to do the right thing. Maybe. And now that he's in the pokey, go to classes. See if we can get some therapy and help there. See, that's why we do the show, to help everybody get a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and uh, happy post-eclipse hangover. Many people still rubbing their eyes from yesterday. Little uh, bloodshot. <clears throat> Man, I got a great... Uh, Got a great look last night. Or not last night, yesterday. In the next few days, the blind spot should start showing up if you yeah. have been affected. So, If, uh, if you're like, apparently like President Trump just looking at the sun, <laughs> then you're in trouble. I loved watching it on NASA.com and watching all of the angry comments coming in. Like, why are you guys still talking? Why aren't you just showing footage of... The moon really? and the sun. Like, just be quiet. Yeah, they just kept talking and showing all the science behind it, and everybody's just like, yeah, just show it. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> shut your mouth and just there show it. There is a reverent part of that. I mean, it was I, – I heard people had were crying, not here, yeah, yeah. but in some places well, they were if you're, crying. If you're, if you're, if you're looking the, at it, then you're crying, of If course. you're in these tent cities, yeah. you've, you've put a lot of work into getting there, and you've spent a lot of time. Yeah. You're amongst all these people that are there all for the same reason. It yeah. gets dark. You have a sunset all around you. It was pretty neat. My wife was expecting it to get pretty dark here, like it did in Oregon. Yeah. You know, but we were only at, what, 90%? Yeah. It is interesting how – once you've looked at it the first time, you're like, oh, yeah, look, okay, that's what, the, that's what the it sun. is. All right, cool. And then now what? the rest of the time, you're just kind of staring at each other like, wow, it's like it's getting a little cooler here. Yeah. You notice it's getting cooler? <laughs> it's cooling up. I mean, what? then what do you say? I got in my car soon after my headlights were on. They have the automatic uh, lights. Ooh, really? oh. It was dark enough that my lights came on. See, I saw everybody else's lights on because I was in the car at that time. And so I thought, oh, maybe they know something I don't. So I turned mine on. Yeah. I thought maybe it would save my eyes. I just did not hear about the eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> I just have that sensor and it just automatically, I look down and I go, oh, my lights are on. Oh, wow. It's really That's that dark. It was neat. It was very unifying for all of uh, those it was, it was a good distraction for the early afternoon. It really was. Yeah, I think most people, though, just were, just like you said, were thinking, "Oh, that was good." 
How much longer can I milk this before I have to well, go back you don't to work? Yeah. Look like, you don't want to look like you're insensitive. Like, okay, yeah. that's it. You should care more. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then there's the fear of missing out. So if mm. you were in, inside trying to work, you're thinking, well, should I be out there pretending like, like I'm into this? We yeah. could have taken the whole day off at work and nobody would have cared. Yeah. I thought it was kind of anticlimactic. I think back in uh, way, way back when you didn't know what was going on. Right. You think like this could be the end of the world. That's what I kept saying. I, Every yeah. time you look up, like, oh, it's just science. It explains this. So it's I kept kinda, saying, <laughs> when, so when, is that when what, do the earthquakes start? Is uh, that what you were ranting and raving mm-hmm. about, running up and yeah. down the aisles, that's why pulling called, your hair out? Right, that's why they called the paramedics. Yeah. Because I was sure it was over. And, we they, and they were late because they were watching the eclipse. I know. They all came, on, they all came in with their glasses on. It was a. I'll have to admit, it was kind of fun to punch you and just to settle you down. Was that you? It you, you were. You're, I, you're the one that hit um, me. I admit nothing. It's kind of rude. Well, we hope you all survived, and I hope you survived the commute. Some people were still coming back from Idaho, like really late into the morning. Or early into the morning, I guess. In Oregon, some at that camp I showed you the pictures yeah. of, some were saying they weren't going to leave till Wednesday. Let, yeah. the, let the traffic dissipate. What's, What's the, the rush? Hurry? What's the hurry? I don't have a job, apparently. <laughs> no place to get back to. <laughs> yeah, I'm now Other people were, I didn't... P- were packed up before it started, so the second the eclipse was over, they're on the road. But you know See, you just smart. go get in traffic. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. It's like the people that tried to beat the traffic from the stadium. You're part of that group that's now yeah, in the traffic. Just wait it out. Yeah. Continue the, you know tailgating party well uh it is now tuesday and you're back to work right you gotta you gotta work now sorry but uh yeah hey 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 hey. sit down don't make me call security by the way security was up there too really yeah we we let security who was was watching things down here who was watching the house nobody all sorts of people were sneaking in yeah seriously Hey, you don't belong here. We uh, Today we're going to be talking about how to get better sleep. I, last night, what, what had is seven that? hours of sleep last night. What is that? Sleep's this thing you do that restores completely your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit. And you got seven hours, seven of, hours. of that? Yep. Wow. I felt like this heaviness, post-eclipse heaviness. It's like it, I ran a marathon. It sounds miraculous. Yeah, it is. And in huh. fact, you need seven hours, seven like seven point seven five hours if you're a man. Oh. If I get more than six, I'm all achy. What? Yeah, I just my my body hurts. What do you I'm sleep on? Just my mattress, rocks. Yeah, I sleep on the rocks. So what is it called when my mouth opens and I make this odd noise, like a yawn? Is that what it is? Yeah. It, do you huh. expel air? Yeah. Are you like trying to gasp for more air? Is there does does that mean something's wrong with me? No, it means you're normal and you need oh. more sleep. Or your oh. brain's hot, depending on your theory of yours. <laughs> it also might exactly. It also might mean that you have a baby in your house. Oh. Because a lot of times yeah. babies make you tired? Make or, you tired. Or yawn a lot and make it that's a contagious yeah. thing. Oh, I love doing that. Messing everybody have, up. Have we had a guest on the show about that? Whether or not yawning is contagious? No, we have done a story that they believe it might be a way that you get relieve or, or change and adjust your temperature. We've had that. We've talked about that story. Yeah. What? Before. Hot brain. Hot brain. Yeah. Like that. You got to do that. And Shake it, gets, it up. You get a little of the heat off the brain. It's true. <laughs> it's like a, yeah, it's like a radiator. 
Uh, so we'll be talking about how to sleep better with a sleep expert. We'll get into caffeine as well, what caffeine does to your sleep mm-hmm. and to your body overall. There's just so much. It's a great article out of The Atlantic that we'll be talking about and uh, a lot of information there. Plus, of course, some more empty news, just news you didn't know you need to know. Uh, we'll get to all of that. I think later in the show we'll even be interviewing Mo Pluto. Really? Like I think hour number two. Hmm. We're going to talk to Mo about uh, not about our eclipse because he could care less. He's actually kind of mad because apparently he had his big event last night where he was taking on a mass near him. The oh, mysterious wow. mass. The mysterious yeah. mass. Yeah. And uh, nobody seemed to care. Especially, we didn't talk about it at all. So he's ticked. Well, I can't believe it. Mo Pluto. Has he ever come on the show happy? <clears throat> no. That's hmm. the problem. That's why. That's why he's a dwarf planet, banished to the outer darkness. And it's it's, just, he's just a cold guy. He's, he's just, just cold. disgruntled. Yeah. yeah. He's a cold planet, dwarf planet. So we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. But first, let's get to Terry South. Terry, find, uh, tell us what we need to be knowing here around the world. President Donald Trump on Monday said the United States' new approach to the war in Afghanistan does not amount to nation building, but rather killing terrorists. Yeah. That's a good goal, I guess. I mean, really. I mean, I we can't build nations, so let's no. just get good at killing terrorists. <laughs> right. He said U.S. support for Afghanistan is not a blank check and acknowledged his recent skepticism of increasing involvement in the Middle East nation. Trump said pulling out of the country would create a vacuum similar to the one that was created in Iraq when Americans uh, gains their flip back to the hands of terrorists, namely ISIS. We cannot repeat the mistakes in Afghanistan that our leaders made in Iraq, Trump said, adding future decisions on troop levels will be based on conditions rather than time. He also urged Pakistan, a neighbor of Afghanistan, to work with the U.S. rather than harbor criminals and terrorists. Yeah. He made a great point that you don't tell everybody when you're leaving. Right. The minute you're telling everybody when you're leaving, then they just all start making plans for when you're gone. Right. You always surprise them when you leave. That's what I do with my family. I just, and then they'll know anyways. Leave. Yeah. And, and the number they're talking about for a troop buildup is 4,000, except he, that wasn't mentioned by the president. He didn't give a number. I'm not giving you a number because that'll tell you our strategy. Like our 36 to 39 allies in the area, they all know. Yeah. The military knows. Yeah. The media is reporting it. Right. But the president didn't report it to the, the people. The fake media. Well, they all know. By the way, he also got down on Pakistan. We did. How, how do you harbor our enemies and still expect billions of dollars sure. from us? They've been careful with how they dealt with them because they're trying yeah. to help us a little bit too. So it's kind of we did find Bin Laden there, didn't we? Well, he was down the street from their military academy, but that's different. <laughs> that's different. Remains from some of the ten Navy sailors who went missing after the USS John McCain crashed near Singapore on Sunday have been found in a compartment mm. of the warship, according to the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. CNN report on Monday that the ship suffered a steering malfunction just before the collision. Though it isn't, it still isn't clear why the warship's uh, backup steering capabilities weren't utilized to regain control. In addition to the ten sailors who went missing in the accident, five other service members were injured. On Monday, the Navy announced an operational pause in naval operations around the world, so the fleet commanders can assess what's going on and why ships keep crashing into other ships. Again, it seems like you may not want to announce that because now North Korea is like, "All right, go for Guam, go for Guam right now. Everyone's down. <laughs> go for Guam." Oh, they might boy. be a little busy uh, moving uh, chemical weapons to Syria. That's the new ah, news from them oh, this morning. Oh, really? Yeah, they were caught. So we'll oh, see what happens there. Boy. Billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk and Google artificial intelligence developer Mustafa Suleiman had a list of 116 tech experts who implored the United Nations to preemptively ban lethal autonomous weapons. 
Hmm. In layman's terms, killer robots before it's too late. Ban killer robots. Yeah. Central to the experts' concern is how killer robots could change the risk calculations and casualties of war. While autonomous weapons may make battlefields safer for soldiers who can be removed from the scene... And the same is not true for civilians who have the misfortune of being nearby. A killer robot's ethics will only be as good as its programming, which could vary widely depending on the government or terrorist organization controlling it. Autonomous weapons also raise troubling and complicated questions of accountability and resource in the event of mistakes. The letter asked the UN to add killer robots to a list of banned conventional weapons, which currently includes landmines, intentionally blinding lasers, and other technologies deemed to be excessively injurious or to have indiscriminate effects. Wow. They're worried about drones. Yeah. And, uh, like, autonomous tank-like weapons that you can sit in a uh, motorhome in Las Vegas and Do these control exist, on the other side though? of the planet. Yeah, they're testing But them. autonomous would be, right, self-driving, self-destroying. Self well, chasing. Yeah, but I mean, you could set a program; it would just oh, run the program. That's just scary. Can yeah. you imagine? That's a bad dream. Now right it there. keeps the, the like in our case the unit like with the drone systems they're using. It keeps those U.S. pilots out of danger. Sure, but at the same time, we have a lot of problems where we're bombing civilians. Right. Well, I mean, just imagine a Roomba with a thirty-eight on it. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of dangerous. It's like a scary thing. Yeah. Honey, did you turn the Roomba off? I'm coming home. No, I didn't, honey. Uh-oh. Bam, bam. Yeah. Yeah, not or, good. Or, or maybe the cat. Who knows? Oh, boy. You don't, you don't want that problem either. Because cats, <laughs> I've seen the videos, cats like to ride Roombas. Yeah. If there's a 38 a, there. A cats love a good Roomba. And finally, on mm-hmm. a lighter note, uh, did you watch the Jetsons? Loved as a, them. As a yeah. kid, yeah, yeah. Or was that like your young adult phase? No, that was a, that was a child. I loved the Jetsons. ABC apparently is in the works for a Jetsons live action series. Excellent. Based on the Hanna Barbera cartoon, the series would be a multi cam sitcom set 100 years in the future that follows the exploits of the Jetson family. Hmm. Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis. There, Zemeckis. There we go. The executive producer, along with. Uh, other people are uh, a lot of so they they produce shows like Family Guy, Will and Grace. They, they will write and executive produce the show. Um, the original Jetsons animated series aired for twenty four episodes. Hold on, is that all? That's on, it from nineteen sixty two to nineteen sixty three. Oh, that's sad. It was a prime time cartoon that they oh, aired during that time, kind of like the Flintstones, but yeah. in the future. Uh, it followed George, Jane, Judy, and Elroy Jetson along with their robot, who was named. Remember the robot's name? Um, no. Rosie. Rosie, yeah. Remember Rosie the, the robot. And the family dog, Astro. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The series later revived by Hanna-Barbera in 85 and syndication with 41 new episodes produced. And then there was a Jetsons movie. And then recently there was, and I saw this one too, the Jetsons uh, had a directed DVD release, the Jetsons and WWE Robo WrestleMania. Whoa. Excellent. So they, they took, they, there was a flop of Jetsons characters to our time and then wrestle, you know, pro wrestlers to the future. Okay. Yeah, it was dumb. It makes sense. <laughs> You know, well, there was an episode where the Jetsons met the Flintstones. Yeah, there was a movie somehow. With that one, yeah. There was, again, a time warp. and they... There's always a time warp. Yeah. I used to be in love with Judy. Is that the daughter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was really pretty to me. <laughs> she had good coloring. Nobody, could, nobody was better colored than Judy. So is that a good use of television? Well, Remake a live action Jetsons? Yeah, that's incredible. Or should they just make the cartoon 
with new episodes. Well, okay. You're asking the guy that was flipping through the channels and found um, bachelors and bachelorettes in paradise yesterday. And so I have a really good feeling anything would be better television than that. Yeah. Animation's so, expensive, so maybe they're going the live-action um, route for a reason. And there's a lot of BYU students that do animation, so if we can employ more of them, that'd be great. Plus, hmm. if we can get Judy back and get her recolored. I, I'm sorry, but she passed. What? Judy? What? <laughs> Judy's gone. <laughs> it's the future. They have all the solutions to diseases at that point. They live in those high-rise buildings. Yeah. They fly in the jet cars. Um, speaking of they geckos. Have automatic dog walkers. Sorry, go ahead. Speaking of geckos, um, did you hear this guy had a gecko pulled from his ear? Ugh. So, I, you know, every once in a while I like to bring you a good ear story. Maybe that's why I don't hear so well. No, probably. Have you? Hmm. There's a, you probably need to go to China because this guy had an earache and he didn't know why. So he went to the doctor. And the doctor found that he had a gecko in his ear. How big was it? It was a it was a little gecko. I mean, probably about an inch and a half long. Ugh. But and the doctor pulled it out, but when it when they pulled it out, it was still missing its tail. So So he's got a tail in there somewhere. Just a gecko tail. I mean mm. that beats like a goat. I guess if you had a goat <laughs> tail in your ear, you'd know, right? So he had a gecko in his ear, and they pull it out, and it's a full-on gecko, a live gecko. Maybe I have a goat tail in my ear because my wife's always asking me to trim my ears. Your your ears or your, the hair in your ears? Yeah, it's probably – yeah. Your, um, but your wife's totally right because when you wear that headset right there, you've always got a little bit of goat hair hanging out the side. It's oh, – man, it's really tough. You've got your fidget spinner and I just twirl that hair. Yeah. You just twirl that cute little goat tail. Um, and I, I do it. Today I brought in a fidget spinner, but I, I didn't want to announce it because I didn't want my son to know that I have it. Well, plus you wanted Don Shaline to think that you're actually working. Yeah, instead of just fidgeting. Uh, we'll, we're going to find out in a minute if sleep helps you relax a little bit uh, more. James Hamblin will be joining us, a, a sleep expert, and we're taking on – and we're going to give you, if you didn't know, we're going to give you the ABCs of how to sleep better. So stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend helping you get a good uh, – the Matt Townsend Show helping you get a good night's sleep. In a society where we feel like we have a lack of things, one of the top things on on most of our lists that uh, we'd love to have more of is that uh, nighttime of Z's. Sleep is one of those things that we seemingly can't get enough of. Here to speak with us today about it is Dr. James Hamblin, the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. And today we'll be talking about sleep. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Hamblin. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This is uh this is I think 
I mean, the age-old issue, everybody knows we need more sleep or we're going to die or not be able to, to focus on things. But in your article, Man Alive, James, you it, it's probably the most detailed article I've ever seen in um, in a magazine, ever. Like, you covered it all when it comes to sleep. And so I appreciate it. You are a writer and a senior editor at The Atlantic and a, a medical doctor. So um, talk to us about uh, what you're learning about sleep. Why is it why is it so important? Well, you know, I personally didn't give sleep that much thought until I got into medical training and residency. Um, you know, you need doctors in the hospital overnight, so uh you have to work these really long shifts. Like I, I work thirty hours at a time and, and that's common for doctors in training. And uh when you push yourself to that sort of Dream, you start to really notice these um, cognitive deficits, sort of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there have been studies that show it's an equivalent of being near intoxication with alcohol, or at least near a, a, a driving uh, legal limit of intoxication. So you start to notice deficits like that and then appreciate that, well, you know, it's not like when you hit 28 hours, all of a sudden you become cognitively impaired. It's just a continuum of sleep deprivation. And, and a lot of us are just used to dealing with very low levels of that on a daily basis. Um, and and so, you know, a lot of us could do a, a much better, be more productive in our lives if we actually spent more time sleeping. Yeah. How much sleep do we need? Is there... I mean, because everyone's different, right? Every body is different. But on average, it seems like most of us aren't getting enough. So how much is enough? Right. Uh, so it does come down, yeah, ultimately to knowing yourself and and trying to be aware of exactly what your threshold is. And you can have too much. You can you can sleep past the point where, where you're doing yourself any good and possibly even slowing yourself down. The average that the studies come up with when you group together all people is seven and a half hours. So I think that's a good, a good baseline to start from. But the most important thing to uh, think about when you're figuring out what your threshold is, is that it's extremely hard and many say it's impossible to ever move that threshold, but it's sort of ingrained in you. You can't train yourself to need less. And, and, and that uh, it's not a sign of, strength or virtue to go with less sleep. Yeah, uh, you're, you're not more threshold. cool if you can sleep less. Yeah, but which we tend to think about in our culture, right? If you're the one who's at work calling the all-nighters, you know, you're considered to be super dedicated or just hardcore, but, but really um, there's not a lot of areas in uh, other areas in which, you know, self-harm or not taking care of yourself in such a, a deliberate way is uh, similarly applauded in in our culture. So it starts with kind of you yourself saying, no, that's just simply not a good way. To, I, I'm just not effective when I'm sleep deprived. So yeah. That's not an option. Can you, can you train yourself? Uh, I mean, I know, and, and you cited some uh, examples about the military trying to train their people to be able to get by with less sleep. So there is, there's getting by, and it kind of depends what you need to be able to do. There, there's uh, some transoceanic sailors, which 
you, you kind of when you're when you're doing a, a sailing race uh, 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 for a long duration, you kind of have to be able to sleep in short bursts and not sleep that much. And people have been able to train themselves to sleep very little, uh, but there has not been conclusive studies that people can do so without um, cognitive deficits, without seeming impaired. You might be able to be awake enough to, you know, uh, uh, to, to sail or to, to do some basic thing that you, you're really good at and doesn't require uh, a high-level uh, cognitive performance, but it is not without cost. Mm. Talk to us about what is actually happening in our brains when we're sleeping. It's it's not just restorative because of energy that it might replace, right? There's there's more going on that which is what makes it such a critical function. Right, right. And that's what the, the most interesting area of emerging research is. We still you know, don't fully understand why we need to sleep and why every animal sleeps. Um but the more that that process is studied in trying to work toward understanding that, it seems like, yeah, there are there are actual processes going on in the brain that might be sort of like uh, taking a shower, kind of cleaning out all of the um, the products of the uh, metabolism, all that's going on in your brain during the day when it's in use, and sort of washing that all away and letting it start over. Hmm. And and if you don't do that, then you can have uh, long-term effects of uh, essentially accumulation of what you're not getting to wash out during sleep. Hmm. So really, yeah, it it, it does. uh, It it eliminates certain things. And like metabolism, I would never have even thought of that. But boy, if all of a sudden there's a tie to your sleep and metabolism, that's that's a pretty tricky thing, or just like even all chemistry management um, and maintenance, because so much of our body is chemical. What does um, when when what is it that's keeping us awake? Are we getting less sleep today um, than maybe we were thirty, forty years ago, or has this battle with trying to get enough sleep always been going on? It's always been going on. We definitely have better data right now. Uh, you know, everybody's been to. Uh, tracking and self-monitoring, and, and it's easier to know that people are definitely uh, sleep-deprived, but it seems like something that we're possibly just more aware of right now. Um, and, <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't be the first one to blame it on uh, devices, the handheld phones and iPads and just yeah. constant uh, stimulation, but and I want to be aware of not be too technophobic, but I think there are certainly bad habits you can get into with uh, having the phone in bed and uh, and just reading reading yourself into a stupor or looking at things that uh, make you uh, anxious or reading work emails or uh, you know reading about uh, international conflict or something that's just going to keep you up at night, Um, in addition to the effects of having uh, light being shined directly into your retinas in the hours when your body is meant to be exposed to to darkness. We evolved to have the sun going down and the the world starts to get darker, whereas many of us continue to 
keep shining bright lights into our eyes until the moment that we are ready to go to sleep. So, <laughs> so that definitely alters things. We are so interesting, right? Like yesterday, we we did everything we could to avoid looking directly at the eclipse so as not to ruin our eyes. But we all look directly at blue light until the wee hours of the morning and then wonder why we can't sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think there's definitely some some etiquette there. I, I like to try to, for an hour before bed, make you know just shut the phone down. And I think that does... There's two effects. There's the the blue light that you're avoiding, um, but there's also just giving yourself some time not to perseverate on on the news or on on social media or on work emails or on whatever it is you you might be compelled to to check and, and before bed and just to relax, maybe make a phone call, connect with friends and family. Uh, do some things that you haven't been, you might otherwise not do. Yeah. In fact, now they've even made it a little easier on some phones with that night shift button you can hit that, like, I guess erases or turns off the blue light. So it's kind of more of a sepia tone. Um, talk to us. Again, we're speaking with Dr. James Hamblin, who's the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. Uh, James, talk to us about um, the mel- what what's going on with melatonin, because... Um, with all the blue light going on, we're not triggering a part of our brain, right, to to kick in the melatonin that then sends us night-night. Yeah, that seems to be the the main mechanism behind why phones or light generally might be changing our sleep cycles. So when it starts to get dark at night, we are our bodies start to produce this hormone called melatonin. And that tells us to go to sleep. And uh, it drops our blood sugar, and uh, we, there are even subtle changes in body temperature, and you start to feel tired, and you go to sleep. And then, uh, you know, early in the morning, that melatonin starts to go away, and uh, you, you raise your blood sugar, and you wake back up, and that is these, our, our bodies have these internal clocks that know to do that on a 24-hour cycle. And it's actually fascinating. Uh, that we we have these these clocks inside of us, and and it seems like the main way that we can mess that up is by exposure to light. So when it doesn't get dark, your body doesn't release as much melatonin or releases it at the wrong times. And even if you do fall asleep, if you don't have that proper surge in melatonin at nighttime, you see more disrupted sleep, lower quality sleep. You're not getting into those deep cycles. And then you might be too high in melatonin in the morning, so you feel groggy and not properly awake hmm. and, and everything is off. Wow. It's and, th- and an interesting point you also talk about is that you can now go to the store and just pick up a bottle of melatonin and and I guess take those in order to help you get to sleep. Is that is that something we should be doing? Is that should we should we be medicating with melatonin? Um, I am wary of it. I, I think there is a place for it when you have people who are who need to do shift work. You know, who like doctors who have yeah. to work at night, uh, policemen. Uh, you know, when it's unavoidable, and so then. If you come home at the end of that night shift and all of a sudden you're wide awake and you know you need to do another night shift, maybe it'd be good to try to artificially 
modulate these cycles. Um, but if there's any way around that, I, I, you know, I'm pretty cautious with that stuff. It, it, it gives it a false sense of safety that you can just go and buy it in unlim- unlimited quantities at the pharmacy. Yeah. Um, I was in Australia recently and they were talking to a doctor and he was shocked that you could do that in the United States. <laughs> um, because it, it is a, a hormone that, that regulates this very intricate balance in our bodies. So um, as to whether it should be more tightly regulated, well, that's, that's a very good uh, question of ethics and, and it's into politics too. Yeah, we, were, um, we went boating at a, a nice a huge lake here in uh, Utah and Arizona called Lake Powell. And we were hanging out with our friends and we were all going to bed. And uh, somebody says, hey, who wants some melatonin? And then they start handing out melatonin. I'm like, what? What are you? You're all taking melatonin to go to sleep? What are you, like 90? And you can't somehow go to – you need a chemical fix to go to sleep. But they were handing them out and I'm thinking, are you serious? This is a, this is a, this is a hormone, right? This is, a, this is a big deal. Don't mess with hormones. It's a potentially serious thing. I, I wouldn't do it without consulting an, an expert on it. And then if you can sleep without it, I I wouldn't rush to use it. That said, if you're using it and it's working for you and, and, it re- and you really have trouble falling asleep without it, I think that, you know, our natural balances are already so shifted by the technology and the artificial light and the, the odd work hours and the levels of anxiety in modern life that, uh, you know, maybe something like this could be necessary and helpful. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe, yeah, especially if yeah. you already know it's working. And But it wouldn't hurt either, I guess, to talk to your doctor about it. We're speaking with Dr. James Hamblin, the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. He's also a senior editor at The Atlantic. And we're discussing how to sleep. Uh, If you haven't read it, The Atlantic's got a great article on it um, in detail uh, written by Dr. James Hamblin. We'll continue the journey, including talking about caffeine, the impact that stimulants have on our sleep, and um, also about naps. Is that a good way to catch up? All that straight ahead. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Go to sleep, you little baby. Go to sleep, you little baby. Your mama gone away, and your daddy gonna stay. Didn't leave nobody but the baby. We're talking sleep. Go to sleep, little babe. Nine, nine. Dr. James Hamblin joins us. He is the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. Dr. James Hamblin is also a writer and a senior editor at The Atlantic, a medical doctor that's chosen uh, to go, I guess, to, to become more of a writer and editor, James, than being a doctor. Was it the lack of sleep that just pushed you out of the medical profession? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope that by writing about um, medical issues that I'm still in some ways doing you are. Yeah. Of, a, of a doctor. Well, especially with this book, because how I mean, we really don't know much about how our bodies work. Right. And if you're talking to the guy that in the last 
three months or so, I've blown my gallbladder out, had a backed up pancreas for a, a day, and also um, had a, a head cold for three weeks. So if our bodies could talk, oh, mine man. would be really ticked off right now. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I base the book around uh, questions that come to me from, from friends and family and, and from readers. So I, I wanted to write something that would that would address kind of everyday uh, questions and concerns yeah. people have. So that's what this is. Well, and I love, too, because, um, you know, the smartest people I know on Earth are doctors and PhDs, and yet sometimes they're the worst communicators around. So to have you, <laughs> so to have you like, help us communicate these, these lessons, these learnings, the messages, I think it's, it's really important. Um, as far as sleep is concerned, a lot of people think, well, yeah, so I don't get enough sleep, but if I just have enough coffee or enough caffeine, maybe a, a, one of those power drinks, um, boy, that's all I need. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's obviously an enormous industry. You have something like 90% of U.S. adults uh, who are consuming caffeinated beverages most days. Wow. So... You, uh, yeah. And, and I think a healthy way to look at that is that caffeine cannot generate energy in your body. It doesn't add energy to the pool of energy that you have available to you for the course of the day. What it can do is shift it, sort of pull some of it forward. If there's a time when you really need to be awake and alert, you can use, you know, drink some coffee, um, uh, and, and it'll make you that way temporarily, but you're going to, you know, crash and be tired later. Hmm. So don't look at this as the only way to actually build that pool of available energy and cognitive function for the day is to get a proper night's sleep and to uh, eat well and to be active. And these things can actually make your metabolism uh, work in a way that is maximally focused and maximally energetic. But caffeine is just a tool to <laughs> sort of pull that when, when, when you need to. So that, that is actually, that's a great way to look at it because in the end, I mean, I guess you could like hyper caffeinate in the morning and then, but all you're doing is shifting a major energy load to that hour or two, and then you're going to be empty unless you exercise, right. eat right and get some sleep. Right, right. And and so that's sort of, for me, uh, yeah, you know, we were talking before, like, a, about doctors working these overnight shifts. And if you're in the last leg of some grueling, uh, long work shift, and you need coffee to f fully pull that energy toward you so you can get through, then that is potentially a useful tool. But note that it's not giving you anything in the overall picture. It's funny too. Uh, my, I have all my brother-in-laws are both my brother-in-laws are medical doctors. My father-in-law is a medical doctor. And it like, so when I want to caffeinate, I just have like a diet Coke. Um, but when they have it, they actually like have five milligrams of diet Coke. And um, he, he's always thinking about it like a dose, a caffeine dose. He's dosing himself with caffeine, and he knows the dose and whatever the dose is or the dosage is. So, yeah. it, but it's almost like it's – I guess that's the key. Um, some of us – like a doctor understands how much melatonin we might want to dose or how much caffeine you might want to dose. The problem with the rest of us is we do it by ounces, 32 ounces, 44 ounces – 
Um, are we getting too much caffeine and how much caffeine really is just is is unhealthy? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, because caffeine is so ubiquitous, we and, and it's not at all regarded like a drug in our society. Uh it, it becomes really difficult for people to even know their caffeine levels. Uh, a lot of a lot of th- a lot of products will list the amount of caffeine or make it available on their website if you wanted to look, but it is not the sort of thing that's adver- advertised or has to be reported on the front of a bottle. Um, so, and, and different forms at different times are going to affect different people in different ways, as we've, we've said before. But uh, there was recently a study that looked at long-term uh, health outcomes in coffee consumption, and just what could be thought of as uh, safe. And they drew a line at four cups of coffee a day. But they were talking about your, your traditional cup of coffee, yeah. uh, you know, not, not the enormous uh, Starbucks cup. So probably uh, that would be a one, one and a half of those big Starbucks cups or four of your old kind of diner coffee cups, those, when you look long-term at people and how much coffee they drink and how, you know, that relates to long-term health outcomes, that doesn't seem to be harmful. And then past that level, people can start dealing with um, insomnia, high blood pressure, anxiety, uh, anything you might think of when it comes to overuse of a stimulant. Mm. This is, I think, another reason. Again, we're speaking with Dr. James Hamblin, who is the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. Um, this is, I think, why it's important to have a medical doctor like you helping us see through some of this, because there's a lot of myths, uh, folklore, I guess, um, misinterpretation of academic studies around caffeine, where we believe, I mean, you, you've heard stories all over the place where it, it actually can make you live longer. Um, you know, you could grow a, a limb that's been, you know, taken off. I mean, it, <laughs> caffeine helps you in so many ways. So what is the straight scoop on caffeine? Is it, it does it make you live longer? What, it, it, it's a stimulant, basically. Yeah. So what, where does it end? You do hear those news reports, right? A new study says people who drink a cup of coffee every day tend to have lower rates of uh, pancreatic disease, something like that. And uh, those make great stories. People love to hear that story because, you know, like we said, 90% of people are drinking some kind of caffeine. So this sort of bias that makes you uh, make these stories widely popular and then the story where it says uh, you know there are also studies that say that people who drink too much or possibly any might have an increased risk of uh some other uh downside and that gets a lot less attention so when you look at it all together um the aggregate evidence is that there's really not a reason to feel like you need to be drinking caffeine if you don't enjoy it. You're not doing it already. And and like we said before, there is it, it is known that you can get too much. Um, so in the middle, you're probably breaking even. There isn't a clear relationship between uh, a, a caffeine and and longevity or chronic disease. But uh, it's one of those things that 
I, I think you need to know yourself and know what you enjoy and um, how things are affecting your sleep patterns. And I, I, but I wouldn't feel like you need to pick it up or, or quit it, hmm. uh, if it as a matter of health. Yeah, we had another guest on once that talked about that, you know, it's probably good to not have much caffeine after three o'clock in the afternoon just because of how long it stays in your system. Yeah, I, I think that's generally a good rule, but also people get used to metabolizing it and um, are able to fall asleep even yeah. when they drink a cup of coffee after dinner. Then you're just so a caffeine machine. That's, yeah. that's a big caffeine I filter. Categorically rule that out, but I, I'd say generally that's a good that's a good idea. And and I think sometimes the people who are able to have that have a cup of coffee after dinner and pass right out are probably doing so because they're sleep deprived and and their sleep may be suffering in subtle ways that they that they don't appreciate just in terms of the caffeine altering. Um, the depth of their sleep cycle. Yeah. By the way, um, your website, jameshamblin.com, starts off with a picture of you and President Barack Obama just hanging out. Oh, yeah. Well, I was during an interview. I was there at the White House for a Precision Medicine Initiative Summit. Um, not just hanging out. Yeah, but, but yeah. you were hanging out. You had, you were just sitting there. <laughs> it looked really good. Hey, we've got a couple minutes left. What would you? What advice do you give? Um, like, what's the one thing when it comes to sleep? When it comes to um, being able to actually just relax our bodies, which we need so desperately? What 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 advice would you give us? Um, that is just the one thing that would go a very long way for most of us. Um. I think that treating, in the same way that we're talking about thinking of caffeine more as a bioactive drug that is affecting you in in, in serious ways and not just something that happens to be in, in our food system, um, that you might think of uh, relationships in a similarly more deliberate way, I think, of uh, that, that if you can have take time to connect with people you've been out of touch with, uh, you know, reaching out to new people you'd like to get to know better, constantly expanding and, and growing uh, social relationships and connection, that's the kind of stuff that's going to kind of put you at ease and uh, make, sure, make you feel uh, like you can go to Sleep at night mm. well, and uh, you, you're you're not kind of just perseverating and staring at your phone and being increasingly isolated and amped up on stimulants, but um, that you take some time to, to do stuff like that, and that that is so clearly associated with good health outcomes, and yet it's something that we we don't think of as um, uh, something that needs to be uh, approached kind of uh, strategically. Yeah. So oh, that's a great, yeah. that's great. Especially, yeah, we don't, and we don't tie it even to sleep, but I have so many clients that are, you know, in bed next to each other, but they feel like they're a million miles away. And then your heads are spinning because you're not connected. You're not relating. Um, and yeah, you might have regrets and other thoughts, uh, that are that make it so so hard to uh, to recover. Well, James, we appreciate you. JamesHamblin.com is the website. Uh, again, the name of James's book that uh, you're going to want to go check out is uh, "If Our Bodies Could Talk: A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body." 
James Hamblin can also be found on theatlantic.com where he's a senior editor there as well. Interesting stuff, folks. Boy, it is a complicated life, isn't it? And you've only got one body, so we need to take care of it. We need to do whatever we can um, and really allow it allows us to fulfill our mission to magnify our purpose here on this great earth. We'll continue the journey uh, as we as we uh, slowly work our way through these uh, these topics. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back. You know, how interesting, um, as Dr. Hamblin was talking about, one of the things he'd recommend to get better sleep is healthier, connected relationships. We've uh, we found other research recently that shows uh, loneliness is, is the equivalent of smoking packs of cigarettes a day. If you actually feel lonely, it, it's as bad for your health, that feeling of loneliness. And by the way, it doesn't even mean you have to actually be lonely. Feeling lonely is the equivalent of smoking uh, multiple packs of cigarettes a day. So people matter. And it's funny, uh, more and more feedback I get on my website at matttownsend.com and other places, um, people are lonely. Even though they've got everyone around them, they're disconnected. They feel they feel like they don't add up. They're, they're just not enough. And I'm betting, as Dr. Hamblin is, that uh, that is causing us a lot of uh, sleep problems as well because our minds don't turn off, but uh, our issues continue. And then we can't process them. We don't get the energy and it's a cycle that eventually falls in on itself. So take care of those that you love. Uh, maybe apologize where you need to and maybe apologize faster, right? That would definitely help you get some better Zs. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us next hour. More fun, more ideas about uh, how to connect. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Tuesday to you as you rub the eclipse burn out of your eyes. It's interesting. Everybody I talked to, they loved it. A great experience. Uh, a lot of fam- my, in fact, my wife said, "Did you take a picture of yourself looking at the eclipse?" And I'm like, "No." She's like, "Why?" Well, I was looking at the eclipse. Exactly. I wasn't thinking of taking pictures. Sports Nation did. did Someone they? took a picture of them. Yeah. Looking at the eclipse. Yeah. Man, why didn't I come out to that door? I, I went out that door, but nobody was out there. So I'm like, "Oh, I bet you Terry went up on the roof where all the cool people are." So I walked up to the third floor hoping that I could hang out with all the executives. I was editing the podcast. I was busy. Yeah, you were busy apparently. So I went up there and we were just hanging out. Hmm. But I mean it was fun. A lot of people came out. But right. I missed all of the radio people. Right. I should have caught on. Because we just – you know that, that back door, there's a wall right there. And we just <laughs> sat up on the wall and it's right there. You know, I, always, I saw these pictures of people climbing mountains and doing all this yeah. stuff. I was like, you can see the sun from the ground. You don't need to get to a higher elevation. My family went to the tennis court. 
they were they did the whole thing on tennis courts. So they'd play tennis in the backyard then, past the horse property. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. You know, I was given the Around opportunity. The <laughs> I was home by the time it was maybe eleven forty-five or so, and this sweet little neighbor boy came knocking on my door, and he said, "We're out here looking at the eclipse. Do you want to look at the eclipse with our glasses?" Oh, what a nice boy. And then you said, no, what do you think? And you just I said, get out of my face. <laughs> you just crushed the child that you didn't know? I actually said, no, I, I'm good. I saw it on oh. TV. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, though. You are, you're such a curmudgeon. Are you the Me? guy? Are you the guy that tells everyone to stay off your lawn and get off my lawn? No, because it's dead. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. I, I got so mad one day because someone was out there. And yeah. For, I don't know why I was mad. It's just yeah. the front lawn. Who cares, right? So I open the door and I go to say, I'm like, I'm that guy. And I you're, shut the door and like, <laughs> I went back in the house and hid. I was like, what am I doing? We have a dog. We don't have a dog, but we have a dog in our neighborhood that uses our lawn as its preferred choice for hygiene. Really? I don't know what you call it. But you grow great vegetables, though. <laughs> it's maddening. Their dog will run across the street, down the street, mm. to our yard. Do its duty and then go back. Same place every time. So the question is how do you how do you tell them? Because we don't want to pick up their dog's doo-doo. So we're trying to figure out as a family how we let them in on the secret about their dog. What I might do, tell me if this is extreme. Okay. I might grab the dog's collar, mm-hmm. then put their doo-doo in a bag, mm-hmm. then duct tape it around the dog's neck and send him home. Is that, so, is that too passive aggressive? Um, maybe try that if you've after you've spoken with the dog uh, owners and point. it hasn't worked still. And they'll be very they'll they'll be very cooperative. They just uh, maybe they just don't know. We came out to our car one time to notice that a bird had done its duties on the windshield of our car, but <laughs> no other part of our car, and about. 20 different spots on the windshield. It was very calculated, very really? concentrated. And, uh, yeah, we're the only ones with that problem. Were you parked under a tree? That's not the point. It was so <laughs> accurate. Well, that's the – you know, they're playing tic-tac-toe, right? Oh, yeah. Birds are incredible at playing tic-tac-toe. Uh, today we're going to be talking about um, friends. Are you too busy to have friends? Because if you're too busy to have friends – then you're, you will want to listen to this next uh, show because you need some help. Also, if you have a personality that makes it so nobody wants to be your friend, you might want to listen to both of those people that listen to our show with those personalities. Uh, because friends, they matter. They're important to your health. And we got a great, uh, a great expert on the subject that's going to walk us through friendship. And, and it's hard because maybe as a guy, you don't think you need friends. You know, your family's your friend. Life is good. But we'll get into that. It also would help you with your networking. It might help you professionally as well. We'll do that. We'll also talk to one of our good friends on the show, Mo Pluto. He's a dwarf planet. Uh, many of you know him as the little purple uh, planet at the very, I guess, end of our solar system, I guess. Hmm. Are you ready for this? Because he's probably going to tear you a new one. He's mad. He's mad at me because he had some big event, but his event on a dwarf planet level doesn't dwarf our event on with our eclipse. So we were all into hmm. the eclipse. We never mentioned 
his his big whatever we call it mysterious planetary mass fight that he was going to have. Well, instead we focused on the eclipse, which yeah. the a total solar eclipse over the mainland, as you pointed out, hasn't happened in like about a hundred years. years. But when have you ever seen? Two planets duking it out. Well, you know what? I haven't. But Unless you're in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, they do that. Two. By the way, just yeah. watched that. And? Loved it. Really? Loved it. Actually, I didn't finish it yet. <laughs> that did so remind what if, me. Because, what if you end so up hating it? What part did you love? I loved it. was to the point where they were starting to battle with uh, Mr. E- or Planet Ego. That's the end of the movie. I know. I Right there. And then I had, to, I, went, I had a speech at the prison. I went and spoke to my peeps hmm. in the Utah Correctional hmm. Facility. Did you get a little scared? No, I love it. It's the honestly. I'm, no, no, about the end of the movie. Oh yeah, the end of the movie yeah. terrified me. Not prison. Yeah, <laughs> prison. Yeah. not a big deal. <laughs> but I, my favorite place to speak, uh, other than with you two, mm. is with a hundred prisoners. Mm. Just letting you know. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. I just feel so close to you all. So we'll get to that. Talking friends. Talking prisoners. Talking Mo Pluto. And we'll, we'll see. He'll be mad. He'll be mad. But you know, I'm not here for Mo. I'm here for our listeners. And a lot of our listeners, ever since Mo was demoted to dwarf planet status, he's off their radar now. Anyway, we'll see how he feels about that. We'll get to all that excitement. But uh, first to Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? In a televised address, President Trump on Monday shared his strategy for Afghanistan and South Asia, saying the United States military is not a nation or is not nation building again. We are killing terrorists. Speaking in front of an audience of soldiers at Fort Myer, Virginia, Trump said that the American people are weary of war without victory, and he shares their frustration when it comes to Afghanistan. While his original instinct was to pull all troops out, uh, he listened to his advisors and came up with a new strategy of adding soldiers but never revealing the number of troops on the ground uh, in the country or announcing upcoming military actions. You're not going to let him in on the secret. That's what he says. A lot of people were mad that they kept setting these deadlines on this date. Everyone's pulling out. And he's saying, we won't do that. Who's going to hold us in suspense? Yeah. That's what he likes to do. It's a marketing technique. So he's moving forward with a new direction. Yeah. Not sure what 4,000 troops, because uh, Obama put like 160,000 troops in there. So I don't know what 4,000 troops would be. I think but... these are special forces training special forces. It's like a it's like a it's like a multi level marketing thing. Yeah, you okay. get four thousand special operators in the country. Right. They train four thousand. So it's a downstream and so situation. So on and so on. Okay. And then three levels deep, you get paid out. Nice. And then everyone gets like a swag bag full of frisbees and pencils and exactly. stuff. Exactly. All right, good. A suspected gunman is dead, and a judge is in stable condition after he was gunned down in an ambush style attack outside an Ohio courthouse Monday morning. Crazy. Judge Joseph uh, J. Brzee Jr. was shot and injured outside the Jefferson County Court. Courthouse in eastern Ohio shortly after 8 a.m. Monday after the suspect ran up to him and started firing. A Steubenville city manager uh, says a probation officer returned fire, injuring the sheriff, said the judge also pulled out his own gun, firing several rounds. Oh, boy. The judge underwent surgery, is expected to survive, officials said on Monday. The motive for the shooting is unknown. The uh, probation officer probably saved the judge's life. How cool is that? Because it gave him time to react and then to turn fire, and the guy wasn't able to actually kill him. So. See, doesn't this remind? This is like a, in the old west. Just this is like this is why all the people that carry guns say, 
Yeah, if, if you have guns, you'll stop guys that have guns. Yeah, the good guy so with you a need, gun. But the parole concept, officer yeah. saves a lot. Oh, boy. Yeah. Crazy. We'll see. Remains of some of the 10 Navy sailors who went missing after the USS John McCain crashed near Singapore on Sunday have been found in a compartment on the warship, according to the, to the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. On Monday, Navy Chief John Richardson took the rare step of ordering an operational pause in all naval operations until they figure out why they keep crashing into other ships that are really big. And but they don't tell North Korea. Coming. We've I already did. Okay. And they see, can't. They can't really do anything about it. President Trump won't like that, though. No, but you know, what are you gonna do? What's he gonna do? Fire the Navy? Mm, don't give him any ideas. <laughs> and finally, an ATF agent wanted to travel north to view Monday's total solar eclipse. So last week, a prosecutor asked a judge to postpone a federal far, uh, firearms trial in Florida in which the agent was uh, supposed to testify in a three-page missive, which is uh, as artful and erudite as is legally procedural. Hmm. The U.S. District Judge Stephen J. Maryday denied the request. Maryday's order makes reference to, among other topics, Greek history, the English romantic poet William, William Wordsworth, and the popular 1972 Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, to ultimately say that the trial must proceed as scheduled. When an indispensable participant, knowing that the trial is imminent, prepays for some personal indulgence, that participant, in effect, lays a bet, the judge wrote. This time, unlike Carly Simon's former suitor, whose horse naturally won, this better's horse had naturally lost. Uh. Maryday noted that such a celestial event understandably occupies a provocative and luminous place in history and art. Among other citations, the judge quoted the lyrics of Simon's hit song, which speaks of a trip to see a solar eclipse. It says, uh, then you flew your Learjet up to Nova Scotia to see the total eclipse of the sun, which is the... Wow, yeah. Reference in that song. Nevertheless, Maryday concluded that one agent's desire to see an eclipse did not merit postponing the federal firearms trial. Ugh. Darn it! So the sarcastic, yet witty, judge. Yeah. And thank heavens for that. You know what I mean? How much time did he waste writing all that up and just, you know, saying no? Yeah. You know, I mean, he he could have, you know, really had, I don't know, more time to do other judge things, like ironing robes and things of that nature. Is that what they do? I don't know. You think they iron their own robes? Maybe. I, I think, I bet they send them out. Do they have a guy? Yeah, they, yeah, they have a guy. They have a robe ironer. There's got to be there's got to be something else, right? Because you can't just, um, I don't know. You're a judge. You gotta you gotta go work your gavel. You gotta grease the gavel. Uh, I mean, you want to keep a nice uh, coat of stain and lacquer on your gavel. Anyway, okay. I I've been trying to avoid this interview. For a very, very long time. Um, but I, I can't. So as you know, on the show, we're, we're pretty close with Mo Pluto, Mo, Maurice Pluto, who is uh, – he's a dwarf planet. Um, he's, a, he's one of the smallest planets. He's out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And he's, he used to be a planet but has now been relegated to dwarf planet status. And we have him on the show every once in a while because of the great benefits of technology. Today, as you know, yesterday uh, we enjoyed the, the first total solar eclipse that you could be seen on mainland U.S. Uh, for the last hundred years. But uh, what you may not have known is, in fact, we didn't even know, um, you know, something else was going on out there. Yesterday was also Mo Pluto's big fight 
against the mysterious planetary mass, they're calling it, the mysterious planetary mass. And we've got Pluto on the line right now to tell us how things went. Mo Pluto, how are you doing? I'm just fine, Matt. No thanks to you. What? What do you mean by that, Mo? Oh, come on. You've been airing promos for my big fight now for weeks. And yet yesterday on the big day, there was not one word mentioned about it. Not one, Matt. Look, Mo, I don't know if you know what's going on here, but we were trying to focus on the big news stories like the total solar eclipse here in the United States. Did you know anything about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know all about the total eclipse. And let me tell you, Bonnie Tyler's song is way better than that stinking moon's ring around the sun. Now, now what what have you got against our moon? Oh, what? nothing, nothing, Matt. Not, nothing other than the fact that the moon is a re-gifter. A re-gifter? Yeah, yeah. You know the annulus? Annulus? What's that? You know, it's it's the ring you may have seen during the eclipse, you know, surrounding the dark disk yeah, of the moon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I, I gave the moon that ring years ago. She said no to my proposal, but she kept the ring, and then she gives it away to the sun. <laughs> no way. So you've been turned down by Saturn and the moon. That's You've been dumped twice? You know something, Matt? you got a pretty big mouth this morning. Maybe you'd like me to come over there and shut it for you. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Mo, Mo, Mo. Calm down here, my little friend, my tiny, itty-bitty, dwarfy, tiny planet little friend. Um, I'm not much of a fighter, you know? I'm more of a lover, and uh, you're not much of a fighter either, are you? Hey, why don't you come up here and try saying that to my face? No, you know what? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, you know, I've got this show to do. By the way... Speaking of your face, I just read that scientists have captured some photos of you, and it looks like you have four different faces, which is interesting because I feel like on the show you've only shown the surly one. Ah, uh, those hacks from the IAU can't take a good picture to save their lives. Hey, how many photos of, that you've taken are you happy with, Matt? That's a good point. I hate pictures. Okay, anyway. Uh, so, uh, Pluto, I, I guess we should discuss the real reason you came on my show. How did your big fight go yesterday with the mysterious planetary mass out there? Well, let's just say it wasn't even a close fight. You know what I mean? Uh, I think I know exactly what you mean. So, uh, you lost? Uh, Matt, Matt, just remember this. It was mass hysteria. People were going nuts. There was like a 15-minute standing ovation. So so you won. You won. Did you win? Well, I, I guess you're going to have to look it up on YouTube and see for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably do that. I mean, he lost. He totally lost. Because if he didn't lose, he'd be all over this, right? He'd be, he'd be excited to... Well... You know what? He's not a bad... He's not a bad thing. Not, uh, not a bad planet. Not a bad dwarf planet. I kind of feel bad for him, though, because you know it won't be on YouTube. There's no way that will make it to YouTube because who, who would be filming it? He's, he still doesn't even understand what YouTube is, how it works. Anyway, well, okay. That's why I'm glad I watched the eclipse.
didn't miss much there. Uh, not to not to disparage uh, Mo Pluto. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking about being too busy for your friends. It won't help your career. So instead, let's put friends first. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Does it seem like it's harder to maintain friendships today more than ever before with your busy schedules, your demanding careers? In fact, the average number of intimate friends a person has is just two, which is lower than it was in 1985 that had an average of three intimate friends. Friendship, uh, friendships are changing in this modern age of technology and with people now have so, larger social networks, yet weaker intimate ties. However, it's still just as important to prioritize stronger friendships because having these friendships help you perform better at work and, uh, and are able, able are, and are, it helps you um, even earn more uh, at, while you're at work. So friends help you earn more, have better jobs. Here to talk about it is uh, Dr. Neil uh, Rose. He is a professor of psychology and marketing at Northwestern University, and he's here to discuss some of his interesting insights. Neil, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's That's an amazing idea that – so since 85, we've gone from having three intimate friends down to two intimate friends, and yet our, you know, our social media has gone off the charts. So <laughs> – What's going on? We have a ton of uh, people that like us, apparently, air quotes, but we don't have the intimate closeness we used to. It's true, and it's really interesting to see how things have changed so dramatically. Just 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have such a wide degree of social media. We didn't have so many what we call now friends, but they are not really in front of us. We don't see them on a daily basis. We think of them as friends, but then... We don't really have the kind of close connections that really provide the psychological benefits of a friendship. And so it's, it's actually quite paradoxical. We might think that we have more friends than ever before, but the ability to share deep secrets or to confess fears, the things that keep you awake in the middle of the night, that's more and more of a precious thing. And we need to work hard to preserve that kind of close intimacy. So we've moved from three intimate friends to two intimate friends. On average, I guess, we have about five close friends or so. Does this, does this vary by gender? Does it, does it vary in any way by gender? Do you know much on that? Yes, yes, I do. So it's, it's actually fairly similar for both men and women. Um, but what differs is the degree of intimacy, the closeness, the ability to share secrets. Women are just better at sharing personal life details than are men. And that, that's a challenge for men that they need to work through to think about how better can I share or reveal um, important aspects of my inner life to other people. But on average, men and women have roughly the same number of friends. One thing that is also a difference is that men tend to find themselves organized into larger groups. So, for example, teams or fantasy sports groups or, you know, maybe three to four to five people, whereas women are better at and have closer one-on-one connections. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense too, right? And I've noticed a lot of my friends 
tend to come from what I'm doing. And so if I so I have work friends, I kind of have church friends, any anything I'm I'm involved in is is where I tend to get my friends versus uh you know just people that have are independent friends that transect or, or that are independent of all of these other activities I'm involved in. Yes, yes, and that's that's certainly something we see with a lot of busy career focused young people today. Um, there's certain jobs that really demand a lot of focus, time, and energy, and people find themselves putting a lot of time into their work, and that means that their social lives are getting restricted to those people that have the same kind of career thoughts or career ambitions. But a well-rounded individual needs friends from different parts of, of uh, their life, different parts of our economy. Mm. And so I was just thinking recently about who I think is the closest friend in my life. And it's, it's pretty much my oldest friends. I'm, I'm blessed to have two friends from my childhood that I'm still in touch with. And it, it shocked me to realize that that's 40 years now that we've had a friendship. That's pretty incredible. And those are people that don't have anything to do with my work. And so that means that we can talk about all different kinds of things. Yeah. And you know what else? Having an old friend means that they, they've known you for such a long time. They've seen your ups and downs. They recognize what's the real you, the inner you, the part of you that's not just about work, but the part of you that's about passion, spiritual concerns, um, love of family, but also your side interests, your political interests, your hobbies. All these kinds of things are part of a well-rounded life and a well-rounded individual and it's great if we can have friends that connect to these different facets of our life. Absolutely. And I mean, so it almost just sounds like psychologically there's almost just the inherent benefit. What other benefits are there and are they finding about uh, our health benefits um, that are tied to having stronger relationships? It's really quite remarkable how much scientific evidence there is for the power of friendships to bring physical benefits. I'll tell you about one study that I still find remarkable. It's from 15 years ago. But what they did was they got a group of people together, about 300 or so volunteers. They were they're actually paid some money to do this, and you'll see why in a moment. They were um, tracked in terms of the closeness of their interpersonal connections, how many friends they had, how often they got together with friends. And then at a critical moment, they were exposed to a virus that brings the common cold, hmm. and they were quarantined for five days. Okay, so imagine this. They're, they're, they're exposed to this cold virus, and then they're locked away, and, and their health is closely monitored. And the key question is, how likely are they to develop cold symptoms? And also, what are the objective medical um, indicators, for example, taking blood tests that could tell like how, how sick they've become as a result of being exposed to the virus? And what they found is, a fairly tight relationship between the closeness of people's connections with others, the number and closeness of their friends was related very directly to how likely they were to get sick. Really? More friends, they're less likely to get sick. It's almost as though friends provide a buffer for our health. Really? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's remarkable. And other studies have connected this even to mortality. People with more friends are going to live longer. That's just remarkable to me. Well, it seems like the more friends you have, the more friends you'd infect with the virus and then the fewer friends you'd have. <laughs> right? Yes. It seems like yes, that's absolutely. how it would go. But isn't yeah, that interesting? Yes. Well, they tried to 
Yeah, they tried to control for that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? I mean, so part of this is. I mean, we do hear, and BYU has been doing some studies about loneliness and how loneliness. Um, and just feeling lonely, even if you're not, even if you have people around you, but that feeling of loneliness is um, also a, it's like smoking, I think, a pack or a pack and a half of cigarettes a, a day um, is the negative impact it has on your life is so. And yet we we live in this time, this day and age where we we might spend so much time on our social media, but not as much time as we need to be spending on our intimate, close relationships. That's exactly right. And, and our modern world has so many ways in which we're pushed away from our close friendships. There are so many distractions, so many ways to entertain ourselves. Whereas 100 years ago, on a cold winter's night, living on a farm, what would you do with yourself? There's no TV, there's no radio. You'd read a book or you'd spend time with your family and you'd have a conversation. You might trudge over to a friend's house and share an evening with them. So what this means for us today is that it requires effort. It requires planning. We need to set concrete events into our calendars so that we preserve the connections with our friends. I'll give an example from my own life. My wife and I had scheduled uh, a movie night, and the, the, the event was scheduled around one particular person who hadn't seen this film but wanted to see it. And at the last moment, she backed out for what seemed to us to be a very flimsy reason. And I've noticed this a lot with my wife's younger friends, that they're more likely than people of my generation to back out of social events as though they don't really find much value in them or don't really see them as important as they really are. And so my message to listeners is to reprioritize your social events, just getting together to have a a pleasant evening of playing a board game with some friends is so important on many levels for all of us. It's so true. Well, again, we're speaking with Dr. Neil Rose, uh, and Neil is a professor of psychology and marketing at Northwestern University, and he's also the John L. and Helen Kellogg Professor of Marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Um, when you when you think about it, Neil, you also um, tie it into other professional benefits. Um, talk about what are the professional benefits for having friends at work and and how does it impact you uh, and even your bottom line? Yes, well, having having friends at work provides the immediate benefit of making the workspace a more pleasant environment. And so just having people that you can chat with, we have an old phrase, the water cooler discussion, that's, that's something that brings great, a great deal of joy into people's daily routine. And the trend in our popular culture of telecommuting or working out of our home robs us of that very important daily social opportunity to interact. Now, there are other aspects, however, that friends contribute to our work. One is giving perspective. And so if we have friends that don't work in the same office or the same career as us, they can give us a vantage point or a point of view that's, that's quite different. And that allows us to rethink our decisions, rethink our approach to our work, and it actually makes us better. Another aspect is certainly the stresses of work can sometimes be difficult. Sometimes you have interpersonal conflicts. Sometimes you just don't have a clear sense of getting ahead in your job. You might be frustrated because your job is boring. Friends buffer against the negative parts of your job. They just make you feel better. Hmm. And as you have somebody who's around to talk with about the stresses of work, 
it makes the stress basically a lot less. So just having somebody that you can share your stories with makes your work life a bit better. So in the end, and at the end of the day, what happens is with friends that you can talk to about your work, you become more focused. You make better decisions. And this results in long-term tangible benefits, including um, greater salary, greater career advancement. So this is something that people have noticed in large-scale surveys, just tracking lots of people in different careers, different walks of life, and tracking them over time, just measuring the number of friends, the quality of their social interaction, and then comparing that later with earning outcomes. But it's remarkable. It really is, and it sounds like a really smart um, thing to have uh, to be if you're the HR director of a company. Don't worry about your people, you know, being too chummy or too friendly. It sounds like I mean, I guess there's a there's an other there's the other side of the other extreme of this. But um, in fact, we saw it yesterday with um, everybody gathering around for the eclipse. There was an incredible camaraderie as everyone would gather outside and um and you know you might initially go out with your friend but you eventually make new friends and to to also know that it actually produces better results that seems like a good value add absolutely that's a that's a, a clear message i would send to any any manager who's thinking about how do you maintain order in an office or in a factory and you might worry that too much chumminess is getting in the way of productivity, but it's actually quite the opposite. And uh, I'll share with you, certainly yesterday during the eclipse, I was, I was at work and working in Chicago in the Midwest. It was uh, around lunchtime, and it was just remarkable to see so many people gathering together and sharing the experience together. It was great. There was a couple of people who seemed to prefer working in their cubicles, and I felt the need to go and encourage them to get out. You know, work mm. is not that important. You need to share these experiences with others. Um, experiences like yesterday are made more meaningful when we experience them in the company of others. It's true, yeah. And, and I, I guess, too, there's that bonding. And then there's those. There's just those few that, for whatever reason, don't want to be a part of it. I guess as we speak to them, what you're saying is – you know, because if you're an introvert, you may not want to be around people or whatever. For whatever reason, though, there is incredible, incredible health and professional and financial benefits to becoming a part of the group. Yes, it's true. And I'm glad you made a reference to the idea of introverts. So we can think about introverts versus extroverts as a, as a very powerful way of describing differences across people. It's one of the fundamental personality differences. But when we have an introvert, it's not really the case that an introvert does not like people. It's the case that they prefer, actually, a more intimate one-on-one -on -one connection as opposed to being part of a larger group or to going to parties and large gatherings where there are lots and lots of others. Mm. I think what we've talked about today is the value of making that close one-on-one -on -one connection, being able to share personal life details with another. That's, that's the thing that's of the greatest value. And so the message is both introverts and extroverts have some work to do in order to preserve that. Extroverts might disregard the power of a one-on-one -on -one connection because they're always getting together with large groups. Uh, and introverts might be less likely to get out at all, but I think that they will find their comfort zone in terms of that one-on-one -on -one connection.
Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's continue this uh, journey in just a minute. We're speaking with Dr. Neil Rose, and he is a professor of psychology and marketing at Northwestern University, is walking us through um, the importance of friendships. Also, uh, his book, If Only, How to Turn Regret into Opportunity. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the, the negative feelings and regrets we may have about relationships and what we can do to straighten some of those out more with Dr. Neil Rose right here on The Matt Townsend Show. can we can be friends just relax man joining us uh to talk about the importance of being uh being a friend and 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 not letting life run over your social life uh is dr neil rose he is a professor of psychology and marketing at northwestern university he's also um, a globally recognized theorist and expert in psychology and we're honored to have you on the show. Neil, thank you again for your time and for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This, uh, the idea of friends, um, I guess one of the, the problems some of us may be carrying is, is some regret, uh, a history maybe of not doing relationships very well, not closing them out. Not, you, know, you make one mistake and you, you, you might carry um, that history of regret. What are some things that you that uh, you uh, would recommend if we do feel a little regret because of our past relationships or even present? Yes. Well, the the study of regret is actually how I started to think more more deeply about friendships. And so the research I've been doing centers on what are the p- biggest regrets that people have in life. And so one of the values of doing this sort of research is that if we look especially at, at older adults, and they tell us what they regret most, um, it's almost like a recipe for how better young people might live their lives. Hmm. And so, for example, what we find is that regrets centering on relationships in general, but romantic relationships in particular, are, are the biggest regrets that haunt people later in life. And so they think about, how could I have made a, a better connection with my spouse? Or maybe there's somebody who got away, you know, the romance that got away. Maybe you should have pursued it more and more vigorously. But also it's it's connections with family. I wish I'd phoned my mother more often. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my sister or my brother. These are the kinds of regrets that, that uh, are more likely to be reported. And, and interestingly, people do report some regrets about career and work, just, just not as much as the, the close personal relationships. And that again tells us about the value of relationships to us as we get older. We're not thinking about, oh, I should have invested money more over in this place or spent my money this way or that way. We're thinking about our connections with others. That's amazing. the, the The work I've done really tells us about how important regret is as a signal to us about the quality of the decisions we've made. And so some of us might think, oh, regret is a useless emotion. I wish I could get rid of it or I'll ignore it. But it's actually a signal to you, and oftentimes that there's something that, you did wrong, but you can still perhaps fix it. There's things that you still can do. And so you can listen to your regret and think about how you might change the way you're operating. And with luck, you'll change for the better. 
It's interesting because so a regret is just your subconscious, your psyche, your spirit, something talking to you, telling you, um, you, you need to you need to make an adjustment here. We're not we're not fostering the relationships or whatever your regret is. We're not we're not taking enough care of that. Yeah, one of the interesting things we've noticed in the basic research is that by and large, people are pretty good at, at rationalizing. That is pretty good at making themselves feel better after problems or mishaps or screw ups of various sorts. But regrets are sometimes rationalized away, but sometimes they last. When they last, it's usually when there's something that you still can do. There's some opportunity to change things. Mm. When you can't change it, you when you're stuck with it, that's when we tend to rationalize. So think of it in terms of buying a shirt. You went out to a store, you tried it on, you bought it, you took it home. You try to change your mind, maybe you didn't like it as much. But if you can return it for a refund, that means it's still open, you can change things. Then you feel the regret and you say, oh my God, I don't like this. And you go actually and take it back, get your money back. If you bought it on sale and you can't return it, that's when you tend to rationalize and think, you know what, that shirt is not so bad after all. <laughs> At the end of the day, when you feel a regret, it oftentimes tells you there's something you still can't do. Interesting. So if we can, we rationalize the regret away. If you can't, but you keep having this this uh, kind of this poke at your consciousness, it's it's telling you there's probably something you can do about it and we ought to get busy. Yeah, absolutely. Get busy. <laughs> get busy doing something about it. What um, I, I guess one of the ways to, to mitigate uh, having the regret would be to take stronger steps to, to create a strong relationship. What are some things you recommend that we do today with our coworkers, with, with friends, romantic relationships to strengthen those those friendships, those relationships? Well, the the number one thing I would say is to be specific and concrete about your plans. Get them onto a calendar and then stick to it. I mentioned earlier how I find younger people today are less likely to be committed to their interpersonal connections. In other words, they might be more likely to just back out at the last minute of some event that had been planned. But make those plans, get them on your calendar and stick with it. The next thing is I think the big, a big challenge we have is there's so many technical devices and distractions that, that lead us to solitary activity. And so you just have to remind yourself, if I'm interacting with my phone and maybe I'm sending messages to other people, that's fine, but it still is not a substitute for actually seeing them in person. Hmm. If you notice that there's a big event coming up in your life, I'll give you an example. I have a daughter who's going off to college for the first time, just next week, actually. And so she's thinking a lot about leaving behind some great friends she made in high school. This is a life change that's pretty regular for lots of people graduating from high school. But knowing that you're going to be leaving behind some potentially great friends, now's the time to start thinking about what are the plans you can make now to stay connected. And never before have we had such great um, technology to keep us connected, but the key thing is to keep those connections going and not just let it fall by the wayside. Isn't that an interesting thing where you've been there talking to somebody, some friend you haven't seen forever, you say, we really ought to get together, and yet nobody <laughs> schedules anything. Nobody makes it formal in that moment, and it, I, you even know kind of at some level in your head that, okay, this is not going to happen. And 
Yeah. And, and you know you're losing that opportunity. So you're saying formalize it, make it formal. And because, and, um, you know, anything that we can formalize by, I guess, having a routine or a ritual, a, a time that we meet regularly. I have friends that still go to lunch, you know, once a month as a, as a group of friends and they just sit around and talk. That's a fantastic idea to have a ritual so that it's a regular routine, something you just know. Okay, it's that time of the week or that time of the month, and I'm just going to go and get together with my friends. Um, what I what I was thinking about more recently for me is how I never used to really schedule things with, a, let's say, a paper calendar. But with my phone now, I find it incredibly easy to make an entry in my calendar, and there it is. And so I actually have all these calendar entries for get-togethers with friends. And I find that very, very helpful. It, it partly keeps it fresh, top of mind, so I don't forget it. But it also makes it somehow more more tangible or more real that we both, like both friends or three or four friends, all have the same calendar entry on our phones. And so we're all thinking about it at the same time. That's just one of many tricks you can use. But the key thing is to get these tricks going so that there are regular interactions. Is there, I guess, is there a point, because I'm thinking about, okay, so if I have two or three friends at work, if I have two or three friends at church, two or three friends at home, I mean, and then my family, my kids, my wife, my marriage, all of a sudden I'm not talking about uh, five friends anymore. I'm talking about 12, and they may not all have the same priority or value for me. How? Any suggestions on how I put my most important relationships very first? Yes. Well, one of the lessons that we've gotten from research on regret is that we, we, we seem to see most people recognizing that probably the number one priority needs to be their romantic relationship, the closest intimate relationship that they have, and then, and then their kids, if they do have kids, those are going to be the most important relationships. So the standard nuclear family. And that's, that's something that's it doesn't need any reminding. It seems like most people that we survey have a good sense of that. It's as you drop away from the nuclear family that, that the priorities seem to shift around. And, and keeping in touch with a close friend seems to be much further down the priority list than, let's say, keeping in touch with parents or keeping in touch with siblings. And I would say that we need to put these at a closer level of priority. So Clearly, our friends cannot be as important as our nuclear family, but they seem to have fallen away to be less important than certain trivial things like like grocery shopping or uh, yeah. you know cleaning out your garage right and so or your uh, Netflix or anything else that you 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 might be escaping i mean that, that you have to do, but yeah, at some point you've got to prioritize the relationship as equal to equal in value as your garage. Yes. <laughs> Seems like a no-brainer, Neil, but we 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 still struggle with it, don't we? Well, Neil Rose, we appreciate you and your great work. Again, um so much so many tools, so much in so many things that we should be uh focusing on and yet you know, we, we still may have some regrets. If you want, you can go find the book, If Only, How to Turn Regret into Opportunity. That's Neil's latest book. Plus, you can also find other articles and information that Neil has been writing um, by just Googling Neil Rose, R-O-E-S-E. And again, he's a professor of psychology and marketing at Northwestern University. 
Ah, friends and relationships. Let's put them first and bring back our health through healthier relationships. We'll continue the journey up next. We'll do a little news update, a little empty news for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Well, uh, not every headline is equally important, but there are some that you just need to hear about in order to know what the rest of humanity is going through. And who better to help us with that than our own Jeff Simpson with the empty news headlines. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. How many concrete bricks have you broken on your chest before? Oh, you, oh! I thought you meant this morning because oh, okay. I had a big morning with concrete uh, okay. bricks. Uh, I, I think the most I've ever done is eight. All right. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Well, Hurt. there's a uh, beat this, though. A martial artist in Turkey set a new world record by having more than a dozen concrete blocks <laughs> oh, smashed on his chest. Why? In a matter of seconds. But why? I don't know. Sounds painful. The man recently set a new Guinness World Record for fastest time to break 16 concrete blocks on the body oh, for, wow. a, for a male okay. by completing the stunt in 4.75 seconds in Turkey. Unbelievable. The man bested his own previous record of 6.33 seconds as he lay on his back while an assistant smashed the concrete blocks with a 14-pound sledgehammer. And uh, I believe we have some audio of that if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to. Oh. Ow. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Brutal. Pretty painful. Pretty painful. Probably not worth it. Right. Also, when was the last time you found a boa constrictor in your attic? <laughs> uh, it's been years. Yeah. It's been a very, very long time. Ever since you had those pest control people come over, yeah. they also handle reptiles. Yeah. So, so an Inglewood, Florida man, say, of course, Florida, says after years of his family hearing odd noises in the attic, they found a boa constrictor living there, <sighs> hiding among the insulation. Probably over the last couple of years, my wife said she heard sounds in the attic. My son said he heard sounds in the attic. Homeowner Bob Vanderherken said, I didn't think much of it. I thought maybe it was rats. When a snake trapper finally removed the snake, he said it was more than six feet long uh, and may have been there for four years. Unbelievable. And uh, we got to go. But there comes a point where if you hear things in your attic... You ought to go check it out. Yeah. Go check it out. Well, if, if there's a boa constrictor, there's I'm just going to move. You know he didn't have rats because that's how he had a six-foot boa. <laughs> that boa was full of rats. Anyway, crazy story. And the, tell me, the boa could have just fallen through the ceiling. Unbelievable. See how lucky you are to be you. We'll continue the journey next hour. We'll be talking about uh, food and how to make meals for your family as they start back to school. This is the Matt Townsend Show.